Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. This morning, I welcome back Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party, and we discuss her ongoing work in the area of gender education and making sure that parents are fully aware of the gender education happening in their schools and the extreme lengths some schools are going to to affirm gender identities. I then welcome back to RCR Simon Anderson. Simon is a citizen journalist and videographer who has captured some of the most important footage this year. We will discuss how he went from a Kiwi man of mystery to the forefront of independent journalism in just the space of six short months. Marta will be back with Media Matters and we will catch up with how negotiations are progressing and what else has caught our eye in the media landscape this week. This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Aotearoa Farm. It's time to see what the animals have been getting up to this week. There is a small shed tugged away from the prying eyes on Aotearoa Farm, and one by one, pigs can be seen disappearing inside. With chairs arranged in a circle and presided over by a wise old pack horse called Nigel, the porcine gathered silently. Well, says Nigel, welcome to our weekly meeting of the APA. Aotearoa, porcine anonymous. It has been an interesting week now that the election is concluded, so who wants to start me off this evening? A trotter gets thrust into the air, shaking vigorously towards the sage equine. Yes, Davy, would you like to share? 
Davy sits up straight in his chair. Yes, yes. Well, you know me, Davy Piglet here. Um, well, um, um, it's been tough. It's uh, well, look, I've been trying my very best, very best. I've worked so hard for this farm, and when it matters the most, Winnie won't even talk to me. I feel so alone. Well, Davy consoles Nigel. You did take several pot shots at Winnie during the campaign. I suspect that Winnie is waiting to get things sorted with Oinky first. Patience, wee piglet, and may I suggest you focus on the things that you have in common for the good of the farm and its flocks first, and perhaps a little humble pie won't go astray. <coughs> Snorted Davy, crossing his trotters and pouting. The truth cuts deeper than a hot knife through lard. Nigel casts his eye around the room and sees another new member, a young sow from the Free Range Pigs, with a fresh face and bright indignation. So Nigel prompts. What about you, my dear? Would you like to introduce yourself to the group? Less of the my dear, my name is Shoei Salbrick and I go by the pronouns of they, them and I want to discuss what's happening over on Abraham's farm. We need to stand with the desert dogs who've been oppressed by the sons of David. I will not stand for it and something needs to be done. Ooh, that's a very passionately shared position, states Nigel. Perhaps you may wish to consider refocusing that passion on issues a little closer to home. Or results with the learning pens, perhaps, weasel attacks on small animals, or keeping our rivers clear and clean. From what I understand, they don't share the proclivity for pork on Abraham's farm. Well, what about all the pink-faced piggy colonisers on this farm? squeals Debbie, the kunikuni who supported with a wide-eyed stare from her cowboy-wearing offsider Dave. Deference needs to be shown to all kunikuni. Reparations made. More feed bestowed on our indigenous pigs. Nigel heaved an internal sigh and gathered all his strength and patience. He knew that the recent successes at the election by Deb and Dave had emboldened them further and they were more taxing than usual. Certainly, Debbie. That is one position that could be sought. However, indigenous implies that Kunikuni evolved from this land. Explain to me then the stories of your people having arrived by boat. Silence fell. Not a word was spoken. As the remaining pigs shifted in their seats, a small figure was seen hunched and looking rather dejected. It was the form of Chippy Pork. Nigel gazed upon Chippy with a sympathetic eye. Would you like to share with the group today, Chippy? Chippy just gazed up at the old pack horse, eyes misted with the first hint of tears, shook his head and turned away. And with this, the meeting was adjourned for another day, and Nigel rearranged his chairs and gathered his composure for the imminent arrival of the sheep. But that's another story for another day. 
This has been Aotearoa Farm, exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and of course I'm welcoming back my all-time number one favourite, most frequent guest, Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party. Helen, how are you? Oh, Marie, it's so good to be back and um, great to get another interview in with you before Christmas. I know. So thank you. I know. Yeah. Well, we had to catch up. Now, look, how's your post-election hangover? Uh, yeah, the first week was rough. I've got to say it was rough the first week and there was quite a lot of disillusion around, but it didn't take long to bounce back. And, you know, the reality, we, we I particularly knew the reality of the situation of the landscape and I think, um, you know, there'll be a few more people prepared to have some other conversations. Interestingly, someone told me last week that there's been over 100, can't remember the exact number, over 100 different new parties since uh, MMP that haven't got into Parliament that have started up. So I think really we need to have a conversation, you know, a few of us about what that looks like um, going forward. And we will have those conversations a lot earlier on this time. Yeah, because there is, there's still a need for us. I mean, out of all those hundred parties, you know, majority of them had good reasons for what they're doing. I mean, they all stood, they're all standing up for something. So, yeah, we need to look at how to do things differently. Maybe it's about yeah. coalescing around the commonalities, isn't it? Not focusing yeah. on the differences. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and I can talk to you about that. What I saw too when we went to the um, rally last week, but. We'll get on to that. No, let's get on to that because I I really want to um, do that because, of course, I spoke to Dai Landy a couple of weeks ago from Manawahini Korero and uh, Rex and and those girls were all there with their Voices for Children rally, which was on the footsteps of Parliament on Tuesday the 31st, Halloween, All Hallows Eve there in Parliament, and it looked like it was a beautiful day. Oh, my gosh, it was roasting. It was so hot, yeah. Oh, it was gorgeous. Mm. And uh, the videos are online, actually, if you want to see what was said. There was some wonderful... Wonderful speakers. You were speaking. Uh, I saw who else did I see? I saw Hannah Tamaki was speaking. Yeah, yep. There was some really good stuff there. So tell us. I mean, I loved what you said uh, when you got started um, because you had a conversation with AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I wasn't sure um, how many people have actually tuned into that. So yeah, I don't have a lot of friends. So I talked to AI instead. No, just for a bit of fun. One weekend, the weekend before that, I decided to ask AI some questions and I wanted to know what AI thought about you know would come back with around the fact that do I need to you know do I need to affirm another person and sure enough AI came back and you know used a whole lot of wokey stuff and talked about empathy and respect and all that and I thought well fair enough but I I went back to AI and then suggested well what about my what about respecting the fact that I might not agree with some of those things and then Fortunately, AI agreed with me that, you know, and it's fundamental in democratic societies that, you know, we don't have to agree with everybody and we can still be respectful. So I decided to keep the conversation going with AI and I went back and went back and I was seeing a, a theme that I thought, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this is not looking so good. So then I threw in the, uh, I, what was it? I threw in the, uh, people can't be born in the wrong body. Yeah, I just said that statement. And I got this 
I don't know, novel, um, convoluted novel back around it. And, yeah, I made a decision, the jury's in, that AI will never be as intelligent as a human race because it's been infected with a virus. And I'm not talking about COVID. Mm. I was talking about um, the same virus that's been infecting our schools, and that's around the gender identity, woke rubbish. Well, Mm. Dr Gad Sad calls it an idea pathogen, and there are some really divisive idea pathogens in this gender one is certainly one that's going on. So in terms of schools now, this hasn't gone away at all. Mm. In fact, since we started talking about this, it's been six months, Helen, since we first spoke. Where's that oh, gone? Gosh. I know. Um, since we started talking about this, I actually got a feeling hitting, because they knew the writing was on the wall, that mm. a lot of this has really doubled down into the curriculum and that there has been I think, an intensification to really entrench that RSE education in the curriculum for the coming years. So then whoever takes over as the new minister, it's going to be difficult for them to unravel. Mm. What is your observations from someone as an ex-teacher in the political space? What are your predictions of what, A, the current government have done? And I'm assuming Erica Stanford will be the new education minister. That's a fairly odds-on bet. Yeah, so there's a couple of thoughts around that that I have. Uh, like you, I mean, you know, end of the end of the busy campaign time. Now I can go back to really, um, you know, going back into this whole education issue because I've had to cover. I've had to pick up with leadership so many other areas, and I sort of, you know, the education stuff was on the side. So I've gone back in, and a couple of weekends ago, I decided to do a wee bit of research. It didn't take me long, Marie, to find find out um, some people who are behind a lot of this stuff. Now, I've heard interviews even on the platform from different principals who have talked about this, and it's so good that a lot of school leaders now are coming out talking about it. But even they're saying, you know, who's who in the ministry is behind this? And, and I kept thinking, why don't I know, you know, who is in the ministry and who's behind it? So, I, so I'm looking at the ministry to find out these people, and I saw these names, and I thought, yeah, okay. So they've been there for a while. Um, I went back to a book that I was given, a sex education book from Family Planning, and I had a look through there and I looked at, you know, who the editors were and the different people involved, and I picked up a name, Dr. Jenny Robertson, and I decided to do a search on Dr. Jenny Robertson, and I came back with, um, I'm like, oh, gosh, it's opened up a whole lot of different worms here, and I found that she was involved in the organisation NZHEA, which is New Zealand Health Education Association. You might want to look this up. Now, Jenny, along with there's four women who are on the, I don't know if it's a board, I suppose it's a board of this, and they are involved in making a lot of the decisions that are, um, you know, the content that is going out to the health education for the teachers. So they are, you know, giving this information to teachers. Now, they have a newsletter, Marie, that goes out monthly, and I decided to go through the the most recent one, which is September 2023, and I was reading through it, and there was a whole lot of information, and then I get halfway down, and get listen to this. This is really disturbing. It's headed, Ongoing Distractions and Concerns. It has been disturbing to hear from many of you via our Facebook community and through communications directly to us. Now, this is teachers that are on the Facebook community of this page, that you're receiving pushback about your relationships and sexuality education programs. 
not only but especially around gender matters. These attacks, and some of them have been quite vitriolic, so the term attack is warranted, are coming from a variety of sources. We can see these will be ongoing in the current political climate and could well escalate leading up to the election. Please make sure your senior leaders know about this. So there's, they go on a little bit further, but then this is what's really important. As noted in our social media post, we, like the Ministry of Education, are dealing with these groups by not giving them oxygen. Just don't give them a platform for sounding off and spreading their rhetoric and misinformation. Now, this is in their newsletter, Marie, to teachers who are listening to parents coming in, wanting answers, having concerns, and they're fobbing them off and treating them like, actually, where have I heard that term before? Oh, yeah, the river of filth. Don't give them oxygen. Don't listen to them. Don't give them a platform because they're not important. These people, Marie, are parents. They're the parents and grandparents. They're the communities of the schools who are the ones that this article here are talking about causing ongoing distractions and concerns. Incredible. This is what happens when you've had six years of the state having inserted itself between the, the child-parent relationship, isn't it? That's right. But this is so revealing about how they, their thinking the the mindset that they have about their power, no one's given them this kind of level of authority. You know, where did they get this from? This idea that uh, I looked into each one of these women who are on this panel and, you know, most of them have had like, okay, 16 years of teaching this or being a team leader here. Big deal. So what? I've taught for 16 years as well. It doesn't make me an expert. It doesn't make me in charge of your children or making all the decisions about what is best for their sex, health, education, this is still should be going back to the parent community. Those conversations are not happening fully and robustly. It is a group of women, or you know, there might be some men in different areas, who are taking control and driving all of this. So it's really good now that I've, I've been doing a wee bit of investigating to see who's behind and to see who's calling the shots and who's pushing this even more. It's all very well for us to, you know, before be looking at, oh, it's the teachers or, you know, like you said before, it's not the teachers, it's top down. And it's not even just the government, right? So we're thinking, okay, I've petitioned the government you know, you go and speak to the MPs and they do so much and you have these conversations. But there's those behind the scenes, there's the public servants, you know, the ones that are in the back room and these government funded, I might add. So we're paying. So funny enough, which well, is not funny, we're paying these people, these four women, to be in their role and they're sitting there dismissing us. These are, it's the power, though. They the were. power, exactly. And I noticed in the in the one of the newsletters saying how you know they'll be looking for more funding, and that right now things are up in the air because obviously that was just before the election, and they did mention that some of the materials have been halted until you know the change of government to see what's going to happen there, which is a re it's encouraging because I know that some of that material will be halted while the national come in and pick up and see you know where to go with that. But when we're looking at that, yeah, they're being funded for whatever it is they're doing here, pushing through their narrative and not listening to the community and not listening to the parents. So we need to deal with that. We need to actually go in there and chop this off 
at the root of you know where these people are actually infecting it because what rights do they have? Who gave them the right for this? We're allowing them. So we need to stop this. All these different little organisations that rise up, you know, and, you know, because they've got a few years of a degree and whatever, all of a sudden they're claiming, you know, these funds from the government to run this. Well, we need to unpack that. And that's why I'm, you know, doing that, putting the names out there, go and investigate. I am not advocating that people should go in there and start, you know, the vitriol or attacking, but you need to go and question. There's nothing wrong with asking questions and demanding demanding to know because we have our rights you know that they like I said we're paying for this we're paying for their for them to deliver these these things not only them so as well as that I looked at a ERO which is the education review office they are an organization that go into the schools and they review the schools to make sure that they're delivering you know the education correctly or if they need improvement and I'll just give you a statement of what um, they have said, a couple of statements that are really important when you look at the difference between what they are saying and this group here who are dismissing the parent groups. So ERO, two little things. The most important thing is to hear from parents and the students to make sure the school is meeting their needs. Okay. Now that you go back and listen to what I just said about the distractions and concerns that that group are raising. Are they listening to the parents? No, they're completely treating them like we're conspiracy theorists. And we know, because I sent you a little video, mm. that this is happening. We've got some schools fully embracing it. They also say when schools are consulting well, they gather perspectives from parents, whānau, and consider them, consider them when developing their sex programs. When that happens... The programs are more likely to reflect the needs of their community. Now, you go back to what I said with the other group who are saying that they're receiving pushback. Why are they receiving pushback? It's the parent communities who are concerned. They're not being yeah. listened to. They're pushing back. ERO is saying that that's what these groups are supposed to do, listen to that. So there's a real mismatch between what is supposed to happen What's not happening? My question then is that surely there needs to be a bridge within the ministry between mm. those delivering the ERO reports and those actually implementing programs that go into the school. Because at the moment, what you're saying is there's a huge disconnect. And if there's anybody that can potentially bridge that gap and reset the tone, surely that is the minister. Correct. Now, I want to alert you to one other thing that's happened recently around somebody in the Ministry of Education. Now, there might be more than one, but when we, you know, at the end of the election, clearly, you know, all the small parties, we all did really poorly. And I put a post up just saying, yay, Labour's gone. <laughs> you know, I put that on our main New Conservative Facebook and received hundreds of comments, of course, and a lot of likes, hundreds of likes. But there was one comment in particular, I didn't have time to read them all, you know, <laughs> you just don't, but there was one in particular but I noticed other people were commenting on. And it was a male who said, thank goodness I don't need to factor you guys into my decision-making anymore. And, you know, he went on a bit of a rant. And then somebody else came in and asked, well, what are you talking about? What's your problem? And he referred to me, obviously because of my advocating in the gender, you know, in the school area. 
And I decided to, after watching a few of his comments, because he said he's been following Helen for a long time, and I thought, hmm, this is a little bit concerning. What do you mean by that? So I looked at his name and I went and did a bit of research. Now, this particular person is an advisor to the Ministry of Education. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. That, you know, and I thought, well, that was a bit silly, Stephen Rains, for, um, you know, coming on social media and outing yourself like that. It is the public like, servant. He's a public yeah, servant. You yeah, know? There, look, I think that there has been a Wild West sort of attitude within the public service. And a lot of that gets reined in. And many media commentators have sort of, I know Bruce Cottrell has certainly talked about it. And I'm trying to think the other one I read the other day around pulling back on the authoritarian nature that a lot of these public servants have because they have been enabled by a government, particularly in the last three years, to do that. And they have run roughshod over our lives in so many spaces. And education being run, like while we were just chatting, I just wrote down here Māori. And the reason I wrote down Māori is I know that this is a conversation I have with Di and Karina and and with Māori friends that I have, is that a lot of Māori parents, there is a... We hear about the social issues, the ones that aren't connected to what's going on with their kids. That's a whole other issue. But a lot of Māori parents are really connected in what's going on with their children. And those who have got their kids mainstreamed and not within Papa, you know, they don't tend to be, they have this sort of very tawiwi, they're very reserved. They don't have that conversive relationship often with a lot of their teachers. So when they do have a discussion, it's a big deal for them. And if you've got people like these four women saying, oh, we don't want to give them the oxygen, where do you draw that line between what is more important, upholding the concerns based on a cultural basis or the individual basis of that family and affirming your gender rhetoric and agenda? Where is the line? I think there's a bit of a culture within education and it's not only these these women and these ones that are, you know, got in the ministry or whatever. Because in my early day, I'll be honest, in my early days of teaching, actually maybe even just before I started teaching in my teacher training, I used I actually thought, because these women, they're in they're within the education system, they're in teaching as well. Clearly they came from there. They were teachers. There are some teachers who have that power who have a real, you know, that authoritarian, like I'm a, I'm reasonably firm and all of that, but there are some of these teachers that I have met that are very authoritarian in their uh, mindset about how much power they have. And it's like I used to think that I might be a whistleblower one day because I felt like these some of these teachers have far too much control, far too much control over the children and the families and, the, you know, the families aren't even aware of how much control that they kind of they believe they have or they believe that they are entitled to, you know, that they might have been in the teaching for so long that they think that um, they know better. Like, yes, they are uh, experienced and they are, you know, within their field of expertise and education, but it doesn't make them the all-important authority over your child. I think there's a real disconnect here between some of those people and the fact that these are your children, your you know, dropping off to school, it doesn't take away, you know, the parents' rights. And I did hear somebody a while ago who's a counsellor and they said that uh, they'd read somewhere where once a parent drops their children off at school, the school takes over the rights of that child. And that's wrong. That's completely wrong. You know, they're there to educate. They're not there to, 
you know, it's not their authority all of a sudden to take over everything about that child. So, yeah, there's a real disconnect between the power that some people in the education sector and those schools and those school environments have over families and children. Well, I look at it in the sense that they have to call you to get permission in order for a child to take a Panadol at school if they've got a headache. Mm. So therefore they have to get permission about what it is that your child takes into their body, but they don't have to get permission about what they put into their, your child's mind. Yeah. And that That's is, it. you know, and this is concerning. So I want to get well, on well, to I don't, it's, it hasn't always been like that. I just refer back to, I just popped into my head when I, when I talked in the early days, a few number of years back, you know, around Christmas and Easter, I remember there were situations where we were told, you know, okay, we've got, you've got this, um, I wasn't even a Christian then, uh, you know, you got this Christian in your class and they this particular religion don't celebrate Christmas, so you can't be doing certain things, okay? And then it came to a point where we stopped having Christmas celebrations. In a lot of schools, they've stopped that, you know, the nativity scenes and all of that. So back then, you know, we had to be careful with what films you'd pl- put on, um, the different type of lessons, and yet now... <laughs> You know, when it comes to sex, everything goes, you know. Mm. We're talking about, well, I probably can't mention it on here, but, you know, we're talking about all of that explicit stuff with children, and that's okay. It's okay. Speaking of implicit, I want to talk about the school that's in your backyard, Helen, Mm. in your backyard. So Beckenham School, there's this, this vid, and I actually didn't watch a video. I read the transcript in Christchurch, and it's a video and it's talking to year seven and year eight teachers, Jenny and Nikki, discuss and plan to teach responsive RSE and explore gender-related topics across the curriculum. What on earth is responsive RSE, Helen? I don't know. <laughs> it's something they've made up. I don't know. It's a new one probably. for me. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> so so I, I quickly looked at that because I, I was like, okay, you know, in my investigating, like I said, maybe I should be a journalist after all. So I found, you know, as I, as I told you, I found all this other stuff. I, I found that because one of the sites I looked on, it gives you some uh, examples of teachers doing things well around teaching health. Okay, and that particular school was one model that they used, how they've embraced the gender issues around the health. And as you would have heard or or read, one of those speaking is the principal, the principal of that school who has fully embraced all of the gender, all of the rainbow stuff in their school. So for those listening, if you're at Beckenham School, um, surely you're aware that this is actually fully, this school is fully embraced with gender ideology in rainbow areas. Now, there's a number of schools that aren't doing this. Kudos to them. Again, where's that power thing that that school, that principal has decided that this is okay, but so she's decided that that whole school can embrace it. And I don't know if you watched one of the little clips where that either Jenny or Nikki, one of the teachers, was talking, was reading to her class of year seven, I think you said, year seven or eight. Year seven's an eight. A novel. A novel, a rainbow novel about, you know, that. And and it was, it's like, do the parents even know that your children are actually having a novel read to them that is fully, you know, embracing this gender ideology? Do they know? They're not having approved, you know, they're not approving the novels that are being read to these children. Well, this so this is where, again, practicality comes into this, right? So this school, I'm assuming, goes year one to eight. 
Yes. You're at 128, okay. 500 children at the school. Mm. And here is the quote, our initial thinking about gender became because we had a child in our school who transitioned. Mm -hmm. So I've got two things on this. They Mm -hmm. turned everything on gender on its head because of one child out of 500 children transitioned. Now let's talk about this transition. Year one to year eight. So we're not even talking a teenager here. We are talking a child. Yes, you're right, a child. Um, I mean, we know that child, you know, that goes right up to 18. But, yes, we're talking about primary intermediate school, a child. The intermediate is 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds. So a child transitioned. I also taught before I got out, before I, you know, started getting involved in politics. The last school I taught at, there was a child transitioning. What that looks like is he was a boy. At the end of the year, he is a boy, and the beginning of the next year, he wanted to start his new social transitioning as a female student. And so, again, Inside Out come in, and they facilitate the sex education, and they give the staff some PD, professional development, in all of this gender stuff, because of one student, one student, and now you might might remember my early days with you. I talked about at that particular time I was relieving across a release teacher across the four senior schools, which is ten and eleven year olds. And that child was in the senior school, yeah, ten mm-hmm. years old, transitioning. And because of that, the sex lessons now became all around gender issues. And it was two days after one of those lessons where I taught a class and there was another boy student who was doing a behavior and when I asked him about it he said he was trying to work out what he'd look like as a female so you can see straight away how that one child where they could have been supported because these children do need to be supported and whatever they're dealing with and their families and we need to have compassion but do we take a whole school approach and infect all these children's minds with something that is not reality. And then we are sowing seeds of doubt around their identity, which is clearly what is happening. And this whole school and this principal is embracing it fully, not only just supporting that one student, but celebrating this gender stuff that you and I know is nonsense and not reality. This whole school is allowed to do that. The thing that really knots my knickers, and again, it comes back to the use of language. I've talked about language before, the manipulation of language. They Mm. use the manipulation of language. And the the favourite little buzzword across this group is inclusion. How on earth can they be inclusive when they're actually excluding a large body of the school population? And as you've even said, if people do speak out like to that group, led by Dr. Robertson, if they do speak out and say, hey, I'm I'm not down with this, I'm not down with, you know, because I feel this is exclusionary to my female child, mm-hmm. you no, you're not to give them oxygen and they, and they don't matter. That How on earth is that inclusive, Helen? And if you, you know, you go back to that, that statement that they put out, it's treating those people like there's something wrong with them. I mean, that's the normal everyday families 
parents and grandparents that are concerned about what's happening. And yes, you're right. You know, that they're not being listened to. They're not being respected. Like I said, it sounds very familiar to the ground, you know, the protest at Parliament, doesn't it? You know, mm. they're not being listened to. We've got some big issues, and that's top down. So at a school, when, when there's many schools that are fantastic out there with great school leaders, but there are some that are very toxic. And I'll tell you that because I've, I've taught at one, and I know many teachers who will tell you the same thing. And it comes from the top down. If your principal, your school of your leader is, you know, leading in a way where there's some, you know, some issues and it becomes a toxic culture, it starts at the top. So if, if the, if the you know, the team leaders are seeing it from the top, then they're going to be treating their, their team, you know, teachers the same way. It's all, it all happens like that. And so the, where I'm going with this is the government. So the, you know, Labour government over the last six years, they've allowed this, they've fully embraced this where, you know, the rainbow community have been given so many rights at the expense of the rest of society. Last week when we had the rally, at the end of the rally, I went over and talked with the transgender community. We actually talked for quite a considerable amount of time and there was one quite reasonable person, um, gentleman there. Sorry, actually, I don't know if he's a gentleman, to be honest, he's a trans person. And But we had a, we had a you know, he was very reasonable and we had a good chat. There were some there that weren't so reasonable, but... On that, we talked about that. I, you know, he said to me something around the trans area, and I said, "Look, you guys have a lot of rights." I said, "We all stand up for human, all human rights, but when your rights are impacting mine and you're telling me what I have to do, then no, mm. clearly that's wrong." And so, yeah, there's a real mismatch, but that's because of the government have allowed it. So the Rainbow Inside Out group. They had, I think I told you, they had a room in Parliament and, you know, there's the a rainbow, rainbow room, room in yeah. there. And that's not just, you know, rainbow room, go and have a chill out. This is, you know, where they go and organise, where they have conversations, where they get involved and lobby. Um, and I know that Chris Hipkins at one stage talked about the fact that there's some people who've been, you know, potentially allowed to lobby the Parliament too much. He, he basically admitted it. And so... You know, this has come from the top down. It's come from the government who have allowed it, who have um, created this atmosphere of culture. And so we need to take that back. Well, it's the, time for the, us to take it back. And this, and again, this comes back to the critical social justice. It comes back to queer theory. It comes back to all of those things. Because you look at, from the rainbow aspect, it's a very, very vocal hand-picked selection group of the rainbow aspect because we all yes. know that a lot of the Speak Up for Women advocates are primarily lesbians. So a lot oh, of lesbians there. And, yeah. and a lot of the, the rainbow community, what I would call the traditional aspects of the radio, rainbow community, the ones that fought for legalisation and were at those picket lines and, and did all of that through the 70s and the 80s, are not down with this. Are not down okay, with so this. Okay, so the group, the, group that were the, the group that were there protesting against us last week at the rally, they weren't lesbians. They weren't um, homosexual guys. These were guys dressed as female, they were the T, the Q, and, you know, the pluses, that, that group were there. It yeah, wasn't the L, G, B. It wasn't the, you know, no. they weren't there. It was the rest of them. And they were holding up signs with Nazi and all of this, you know. And in the case. current climate, really? Read the no. room. I know. And, and so when I went up there and had a chat, 
had a chat with a few of these transgender people, I was beckoning over the particular guy who had a full-on face mask on so you couldn't identify him, who was holding the Nazi sign calling us Nazis in one hand and in the other had a big camera taking photos of us all. And he wouldn't come over and talk with me because I wanted to know what was with the Nazi sign, you know. Mm. Tell me, why are we Nazis? And, and yeah, so it was a very interesting, interesting day. But just going back to what you said about the lesbians, so the group that we were there, so it was Manawahini Kōrero, they organised it and they had um, sent me an invite to speak as well as a number of other women. There were, like you said, uh, a number of those women are lesbian. You know, and and here we were, there were some faith-based leaders there as well. And we all came together. Okay. Now I'll just go, I'll talk about this because we talked a little bit at the beginning around coming together around the parties and things. There was myself, there were two, three other women from different parties. So there were four political parties represented there. The four of us women, very strong women, we all spoke. Now there were no egos. There was no agenda. We were very diverse, and yet us women could come together on the day to stand for one thing. So for anyone listening out there, I'm hoping that, you know, potentially those male leaders out there might listen and take a leaf out of that book when we have some conversations in the political arena next because it didn't matter all the other stuff. That was all laid down. We came together on the day together for this one cause and with this one purpose. Yeah, like I said, there were four political parties, very strong women, incredible women, and uh, we went away from there having a bit of a conversation as well about what we can do together to work together. And I think that's really important, and hopefully next year we'll continue in that space. Can I just mention one more thing? Before I went there, I had an interview with a transgender, ex-transgender person, so I met up with him and he was very gracious and gave me a couple of hours so we we talked for about two hours he's here in Christchurch Marie and maybe you'll get to talk to him one day but I do plan to interview him at some point in the future and he's more than happy to get on board with this as well so, so this is a de- detransitioner a detransitioner yeah mm-hmm. and what that looks like I mean I'm obviously not going to share his information he'll, he'll share that when when I interview him what he, what he did say is people have a probably a one perspective of what a detransitioner is so there are people who start that transition journey through the social transition like our children that are in school those children that we talked about that are starting that transition where they do it socially with the dress and with the pronouns and their names. And then they're put onto the puberty blockers most of the time, you know, to halt that puberty. So this particular person I was talking to, he he was taking puberty blockers and hormones for five years. Five years, okay. He didn't go to the next level of the surgery, surgery, fortunately. But he's still classed as, you know, a detransitioner because he was on that path and lived for five years as, you know, going towards becoming a female. Now, one thing he did say to me is when he first, you know, was uncomfortable with some things about his life, he got on social media, as you do, and it was, I think it's called Reddit, if you've heard of Reddit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And he told me it only t- was, took a, a matter of months before he was convinced that he was a transgender 
that's how long it takes, you know, for these children, for our children now, for parents out there listening to this and community leaders or teachers, it is social media. There are activists on social media, there are influencers on social media, there are sexual deviates on social media who are, you know, getting a hold of your children, of our young people, and changing the way that they think about themselves. And if you've got children who are vulnerable, and look, this is not even just about mental health. This is about, it's uncomfortable being a teenager. It's uncomfortable in this world sometimes. You know, this it's not easy all the time. And we can all have struggles. But if you're in that space and you're online in the social media world, you know, and you're going to be captured, and that's a really vulnerable place for your people, for our people to be, and then all of a sudden they get captured into this cult and this is what um, the detransitioner has said. It's a cult. It is a cult. And he his message to our government is it does need to be banned from all schools. Now, when I went to Parliament the first time five years ago, Kieran McNulty said, uh, you know, you haven't convinced me that New Zealand has a problem. Well, five years on, we have a problem. You know, and I used examples from detransitioners in America because at that point, you know, it wasn't so in our face. Now, clearly it is because the Ministry of Education have embraced it. You know, some of the schools, like Beckenham Schools, they're embracing it. And so all of these children who might just be uncomfortable and having normal puberty, uncomfortable feelings, are now being encouraged to question and identify something different. It's coming from school. It's coming from social media. Mm. All of this needs to be talked about. We need to talk about this as a community as well as to our government. Now, you talked about is it, oh, Erica, Erica Stanford, and I'm thinking, wow, great, I've heard her, and I thought, well, she's got a lot more testicles than Jan Taniti did, so I'm thinking, great. I think, I think testicles and, and, and things up top as well, just quietly, but that's probably, yeah. we don't need to worry about that anymore. No, but, you know, I was thinking, okay, there, there might be some hope here. So I listened to Erica, even though she hasn't been identified as a, um, identified as the education minister yet. I'm hoping that she will be. Mm. So if she is, I'm going to have some conversations there because even Erica, although some of what she was saying, I thought, oh, good, good, good. But then she still went to, oh, there's misinformation out there. And I'm thinking, no, Erica, no. I think she's a little bit naive in what's really happening. And it's all very well if you look at Erica and, you know, different others who send their children to desultine schools or private schools. I've, I've talked to but people at private sometimes schools. Sometimes they can be the worst. Oh, well, okay, true. But but then you've got a lot of them are not going to push this stuff no. because they make sure that their children are not going to be infected with this. Um, so it's all very well for Erica to sit there and think that this is not happening and it's misinformation. I mean, I've got, we've got evidence. Most of us have got some evidence of it happening. You've got the principal yeah. in the uh, from Beckenham School talking about our embraced they have embraced it so yeah there was, there's, the good thing is I'm going to have some conversations with a few people soon and looking forward to that and I'm looking forward to the fact that some of these other organizations have been halted for the moment and, and this is a time for those of us like you know like yourself like me like those other women who bless them you know um d that die dialandy and all of those Reeves amazing women Philippa, oh, yeah. gosh it was fantastic meeting them it's time for us now to actually go further because the protest 
like you heard, they're ignoring us. They're not listening. They're not giving us platforms. We need to go further. And so we will go further. Um, just just to put, um, finish on the detransitioner, uh, I am halfway through my law degree and I can see some law suits coming. So for those people out there listening, educators who are fully embracing this, just be warned that there will be lawsuits. There's going to be lots because there are parents now talking who have had their children go through this in schools. The time will come when all of you people who are out there pushing it, uh, we're going to be identifying you now. It's not now about, oh, it's just somebody in the ministry. We are going to find more information about what you're doing, why you're doing this, and who gave you the right to do it. And, yeah, just so that they're aware of that. Yeah, it's the big thing now, and I I hope a lot of people – uh, don't do this, is that we, you take your eye off the ball now that government has changed. Actually, this is the time that you really do need to hone yeah. in and focus. And I know you and I will catch up. I'm actually taking a big, long break over the summer, Helen. Oh, oh, thank goodness. Good. I, God, I, no. <laughs> I need, oh gosh, it's been such a whirlwind with mm. Reality Check Radio. It's uh, all oh, of you us. guys have been incredible and we thank you. We're so grateful that you've been there and, you know, we've been able to get that platform to speak. We're really appreciative. So thank you, Marie, and to all your whole team have a break yeah yeah, yeah. and I'm taking a wee bit longer than than the rest of the crew but we will I will be back in February so I'm taking all of January off but I will be okay. back in February and we will get so once the school year kicks in you and I mm-hmm. will touch base because by then the minister will be announced uh and I did listen to Christopher Luxon last week and he was you know he it's it was sounding hopeful like they were um lots of progress was being made and mm. he was very very keen to kick on with a lot of stuff before christmas which is excellent i think as long as parents and the people do send a very very clear message to whoever is going to be in the coalition um that hey you know we're here don't forget us these these are the concerns that we have um Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens moving forward so once the school year gets established next year you and i can touch base and and see what's going on yeah and not just oh we're here we need to be a little bit more proactive than that and a wee bit stronger we're here Mm -hmm. they're our children you know Mm -hmm. these are our children this is what we want this is what we don't want and um we need to have these conversations before they set up the new year at school before they try and implement any more of this stuff to get it to remove it. So yeah, we will um continue on. And it's great that there are those other organizations now who we can work together and do that. So I think yeah, all of those oh, great it's people. All, it's always a joy to catch up with you, Helen. It's so good to talk to you. This has been Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party, and we've been talking about gender education in our schools. She's continuing her advocacy work in that space. And there's still, of course, lots of fantastic content here to come with Reality Check Radio. Uh, Marty is here shortly with Media Matters, and we'll hopefully we'll be able to squeak in a bit of Woke News of the Week as well. Thanks, Helen. I've spoken to Helen many times on this topic and you can refer back to any of these interviews by just going to the RCR app, available on the App Store or Play Store if you're yet to download it. Go to my Counterculture page and you will find all my interviews with Helen there. Or search up using the keyword Houghton for all of Helen's interviews on RCR. And don't forget to send your feedback and your thoughts to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us at 2057. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio/members.
Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, your host, and I'm welcoming back to Reality Check Radio for a second time. First time on Counterculture, though. Simon Anderson, how are you? And good morning. Good morning. I'm very well. Delightful to see you again. Thank you for inviting me once again to your show. I know. And when we spoke the first time, which was when I was covering breakfast several weeks ago, I said to you once we finished, I said, oh, I could feel that we could have a much bigger conversation. And here it is. We are going to have a good old chat. So firstly, for our listeners, um, we're going to recover some ground that we spoke about uh, back then on breakfast. You have a really fascinating story because up until March, you were just Simon Anderson, everyday Kiwi fella, living your life until one day you popped out to the park with your, with your 360 degree camera. And then what happened? Yes, that, that's precisely correct. I went to uh, Albert Park to film the, the Posey Parker speeches and captured a significant amount of 360 degree footage, which went viral overnight and that millions of people ended up viewing around the world. Clips from it have been used as evidential material in court cases for police complaints and so on and so forth. So my claim to fame is that I was just this guy with a camera who ended up capturing some footage which became rather prominent. Mm. So what uh, was the motivation to go to Albert Park that day? I had intended to climb Kilimanjaro in July do some safariing and some diving in Zanzibar and lovely things like that. And I, I wanted to learn how to use my camera before the trip. In the end, I've delayed that trip by a year. So it was just a whole bunch of accidents that led led me there. Mm. One of the things we did touch on last time was, and you've written this wonderful article too, which you've sent a forward copy to me of. And it was one of the things that you said in there in regards to what you were discovering over the news over the next few days was what was being portrayed in the media, betrayed what you saw in the footage that you captured. Do you want to sort of describe that a little bit more for our listeners? Sure. That was really astonishing how the ruling Labour Green regime and their media allies were over the the nightly news that night and over the next two days, were constructing a false narrative that the riot in Albert Park conducted by the Rainbow community and their allies had been a peaceful protest. This was particularly apparent from state-owned media and some of the Green Party and Labour Party MPs who were participants in that crowd. I was very conscious that the material that I had directly contradicted that narrative. So here's the problem. It's a new camera, and I wasn't precisely certain how to export material from it. And it took me a couple of days to learn. And then I started publishing footage, which did directly show the violence that, that occurred there and the just the rabid nature of the crowd that were assaulting women and doing everything that they possibly could to get to Posey Parker and inflict harm upon her. I published numerous clips from that and what I take a, a certain amount of pride from is that I went a long way to shutting down that narrative. I don't think that the mainstream media, rather legacy media, particularly the, the Green Party, could get away from the story fast enough. No, and there was certainly a shift 
once that footage went out. And I think once two international outlets picked up the footage more readily than the domestic ones. Yeah, so, uh, and that's really interesting. So whenever I capture anything interesting with my camera, it's really fascinating. The people that I speak with domestically are people such as yourself, Elliot Akeley, Chris Lynch, the platform, more independent media. The organisations that don't ever contact me are TV1, TV3, Stuff, the spin-off. None of these organisations have any, any interest. Internationally, it's a completely different story where I get requests for syndication from organisations like Reuters and Associated Press and Al Jazeera. There's a real interest in it. And it, I think it, it demonstrates, in my opinion, just the inherent bias that we have in this country amongst the legacy media. Mm. Well, it's a very small community, and we've certainly discovered it since we've had this station, that there is a club, and we're certainly not in it, Simon. So it is quite an interesting thing to observe. So, So you've captured the footage at Albert Park, but since then you have captured a lot of footage, like you've gone to a variety of different events. So describe some of those that you've gone to in recent months and some of the things that you've observed in that time. Okay, well, I, I think the, the primary one you're probably interested in is the 20th of September uh, Let Women Speak event in St. Patrick's Square, which Posey Parker was intending to attend and to coincide with the uh, a court appearance in relation to one of her assailants in March. Now, unfortunately, she didn't feel safe enough to return to New Zealand for reasons that we discussed previously, I think, about um, the OIA responses that, mm. that I released. Because of that, I felt like I have uh, a civic duty and a moral obligation to do what I could to ensure the safety of the women that would be attending to speak or to rather and to listen at that event. And my thinking was that uh, subsequent to Albert Park, the rainbow community who had behaved so abominably and assaulted so many people were particularly cognizant now of the damage that footage of that sort of behaviour would do and also that the police might be able to be embarrassed into this time ensuring that the peace was kept. So to, to achieve that objective, what I did was form a team of volunteers to film the event and made it very public that we were going to do so. That was an objective that that I think we achieved. We, we captured some good footage, and I think that by being very visible, we discouraged any misbehaviour. Do you feel that that by capturing that footage back on March 25, that you've actually seen, as you said, you saw on the 20th of September a change in attitudes, but also too there was the Manawahini Korero Children's Rally in Wellington, and only a tiny group of protesters turned up for that, which I saw in media and I've spoken to, in fact, this I'm speaking to Helen Houghton too today. And do you feel that because you're there capturing that bad behaviour, if it were to occur, that that has actually been enough of a deterrent for those who are wanting to more than just protest, but to infringe on people's 
right to speak, they're finding it, no, we need to step back or? I I hope so. I hope so. Yes. Well, I I hope that that's the case. And I also hope that it encourages the police to do a better job than they did in March. And in their defence, it was certainly the case in St. Patrick's Square that they did so. They were very good. They were very, very well organised. They knew precisely where they needed to be. But more than that, they knew precisely who the threat was. Mm. You know, it wasn't the case that the police were there having to keep angry women from from misbehaving in any regard. So we've now in the process of a political switch. And whilst we're just still in the limbo in terms of ironing out the details, as it were, in your gut now, having sort of been following this for a while, what are your sort of thoughts in terms of what we will see in terms of public discourse, particularly in the New Zealand landscape over the next little bit? It has certainly flowed very much in one direction for the last six years. Do you feel that the tide may start turning with a change of government? Well, I think one should hope. Uh, I think that our national discourse, it seems to me, has become increasingly polarised and it has tended to be very much a left-wing cancel culture agenda, which has been in the ascendancy. And one might hope that with the change of government, we might return to a more rational exchange of ideas. So that cancel culture, and I mean, did that affect you personally? Did they come after you? Yes, I mean, it's certainly the case that that there are sections of the community and, to be fair, sections of the authorities that are not particularly pleased that I've been doing things like publishing witness statements, OIA responses, my own footage of some of these events, footage from other photographers who wish to remain anonymous and so on, people who are not best pleased. Conversely, there are a lot of people who are appreciative. But the interesting thing, Marie, is to be now recognised in public to no longer, you know, on, on March 25th, I was a private citizen and now I'm I'm well known. The days of flying under the radar are no longer able to be had. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is very interesting to see that polarisation and One of the little observations that I've had has been that the population seems to be quite getting quite groomed to be in a flight and fight type response. So we saw it using with fear with COVID. Did you see any of the Lord Sumption features whilst he was in the country? I caught some small pieces of it, but I'm familiar with his work and he's, uh, he's, he's a very wise and very insightful man. Yeah, he is very much so. And he said in an interview with Jack Tame that fear, the fear that was used during the pandemic in order to suppress the population, you know, is a, is a very dangerous thing. But how do you keep that fear going once the pandemic is gone? Where is that fear applied? And an observation I've had certainly has been it's been applied then with that division with the, the war in Europe and Russia and Ukraine. And I just can't help feeling that they're now using, even politically here in this country, that they're trying to weaponize the, the dreadful conflict in the Middle East in the same way that they used that fear response during COVID and the fear response again with Europe. They're now trying to keep 
the population on eggshells or keep them on their toes and jittery and, and wanting to, to consume media in order to keep us scared. I, I think that's probably right. And I'm, I'm reminded of Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince, which, you know, 600 years ago. And the, the quote that most people know from it is that it is better to be feared than to be loved. And it's the real politic of the Middle Ages. And it's not how discourse and a liberal democracy should operate, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. What I think should happen is that the fourth estate should present all of the information neutrally and for those interested to be able to to discuss it in an open and respectful manner. So any thoughts of giving up the day job and chucking yourself into this full time? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a lot less remunerative. <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. I, I I often joke that with this job, I um, it's better than it's cheaper than therapy because at least they pay me to have interesting conversations and with fascinating people. So that's always a good thing, isn't it? Have you been following much of the protests around the conflict in the Middle East? What are your, some of your thoughts there? I have been. So I've been filming weekend after weekend pro-Palestine demonstrations. And those have been an, an, an interesting experience, although I, I, I do have to add that I didn't attend the one in the domain where Phil Twyford and Chloe Swarbrook gave very, very contrasting speeches, one of which alarmed me greatly. The two that I've attended have been great. For the first one, I was there with another photographer. What's happening at demonstrations these days is that for photographers, we, we need to operate in pairs so that uh, we can kind of back one another up a little bit. And I, I've been doing that. And for the for the first pro-Palestine demonstration, it was lovely. You have the majority of the crowd are Muslim people there with their families, having a nice day out in the sunshine, exercising their democratic right to express an opinion. And you'll see from some of the footage that I shot, I allow the demonstration to get to get a perception of the size of it. I stand still, for instance, on Queen Street and allow the demonstration to, to walk around me so that you can get a perception of the crowd. And both that weekend and the subsequent weekend, it was lots and lots of smiley, happy people waving to the camera and just being absolutely lovely. The organisers of the demonstration, we contacted them subsequently to make our footage available for any purpose that they wished to make it, and they were thoroughly appreciative of our efforts. Conversely, there is a section of the crowd of the perpetually aggrieved, the sort of people who were agitating against women's rights in Albert Park, and they seem to have coalesced around organisations like the Unite Trade Union and the Green Party, and some of their behaviour was very, very contrasting. They're much more confrontational and aggressive. Would these be the ones that sort of incited the flag burnings and such? No, the flag destruction was Muslim people. And have you you seen the overhead footage that I shot? Not the overhead footage, no. Okay, all right. Well, it's really quite funny because, in my opinion, my footage of that event is just the very, very best, but it just it hasn't seemed to have found too much traction. Anyway, that was a bit of a concern last weekend 
that there were some of the younger Muslim teenagers were masking up. Now, the previous weekend, there was absolutely no Muslim people with their face covered. The only people with their, with their faces covered were those left-wing activists, Unite Trade Union people. You know, they use COVID masks and hoods to disguise their identities. But this time there were four or five. And what is more concerning for me is looking at the footage that I've seen from the photographers that I know who were in the domain is that that was much more prominent, that there were Muslim youth masked up like that. And that's a poor sign, I think, because it points to the potential for there to be misunderstandings that, that could lead to aggressive incident, incidents. I'm also very, I'm very, very watchful of what's happening in the United Kingdom at the moment. I think for Armistice Day and for Remembrance Day, for there to be, there's the potential for conflict between, what would one say, between the, the Muslim community and the, for want of a better term, Indigenous British community who are looking to achieve very, very different objectives with the cenotaph in Whitehall, a potential centre of gravity for that conflict to, to occur. And if that happens, I'm very, very concerned that there will be civil unrest would spread to other Western cities. And I'm very, very hopeful that won't occur here. What, from my opinion, I think for countries like us that are so far away and so uninvolved in, in this conflict, that it is right and proper for us to be calling for the protection of civilians, for peaceful resolution to issues and, and to not take sides. Unfortunately, the rhetoric that, that I've been seeing on social media, hearing from people around the traps, decreasingly reflects that sentiment. Mm. It's something that you see before in terms of families. You know, there were families and communities out there expressing their concern. What I am sort of observing is a distinct difference between that group of people, the, the actual community, and those activists and so-called allies and adverted commas who are using the cause to actually forward their own agendas as opposed to, you know, supporting actually genuinely and authentically supporting the community that's with them right there, right now. Do you get that feeling when you've observed those groups? That's an insightful observation, Marie. You know, there's a real difference between a Muslim husband and wife pushing a pram with their child in it inside a demonstration and some of these allies, as, as you say, masked up, holding signs attached to pieces of 4 by 2 which could rapidly become a weapon, seeking to promote their own agenda. And I'm very much seeing that, and I, I don't think it's helpful. Mm, certainly not. I, I just have this feeling, like I've had this uneasiness in recent weeks that I feel like that, as you and it's interesting, your thoughts on the UK, actually, and I think you could be onto something there. And I know that there was tensions too. There's tensions right across Central Europe with the unmitigated massive flood of immigration there since sort of what, 2015, 2016. 
and the Swedish tourists that were killed in Brussels. And it makes me wonder that it, there will be one more incident if something were to happen in the United Kingdom that we would be staring down riots a la Black Lives Matter 2020 all over again. I just sort of have this uneasy feeling that something like that could start. And those agitators potentially would deliberately create something in order to you know, further an agenda or further unrest. I, I don't know. I mean, these are just, I'm just spitballing out loud here, but these are certain, it's certainly something that I'm observing is sort of because I stand, I try to stand back because it's difficult when you're in, when you're in it, you get very passionate about it. And so I'm, so I'm trying to stand back and look at the trends and I can't help feeling I'm seeing these trends from 2020 starting all over again. I concur. It feels to me like we're we're sitting on on a uh, what's the term tinderbox, and all it's going to take is for the wrong match to be struck, and it's going to be conflagration, mm. um, both here and overseas. And I think that Europe's in a particular circumstance where you have a number of cultures rubbing up against each other currently in a manner which is not convivial, and there's a lot of the angry people in the world. But I'm also conscious that none of these things are our fight. One of the wonderful things about living in a country like New Zealand is that we have always tended to have a lot more cultural cohesion. Uh, you, you know what it's like. Like you go to, even if you go to Australia, it's possible for immigrant communities, because their populations are so much larger, to gather in one area shop in their traditional shops, go to schools that are taught in their native languages, and it's kind of never the twain shall meet. There's less of a need for integration between communities when immigration occurs in those large numbers. In, in New Zealand, it's never really been like that. You know, it's, I mean, I'm sure it was the same for you. Like, I, you know, I, I went through school. I, I had Chinese friends who were sixth-generation Kiwis. I played sports with my Maori and Samoan friends. I'd get invited to Hindu weddings, or it's just the way that New Zealand was, and it was, and and I hope it still is, and it was all rather lovely. It's a shame if that changes, and I, and I suspect that the the last six years of a government which has been rather focused on identity politics, that cohesion may have been negatively impacted. Well, it's when you've got a government that's trying to conflate identity with culture. And it's always going to be a dangerous thing. And yeah, I, I agree. So where to from here? I mean, have you got anything that you're going to keep an eye on between now and Christmas in terms of, I mean, you mentioned the UK, but closer to home, what are some of the things closer to home that you're keeping a little eye on? Uh, well, the publication that uh, you mentioned earlier that has kindly invited me to become a columnist, it's really interesting. They... They're uh, a libertarian publication, kind of traditional libertarian publication, and they're an Australian outfit. And it's, I'm sure you're as aware as I am, excuse me, that culturally the Australian public takes very little interest in New Zealand affairs. There's, I don't think too many Australians are accustomed to the idea that they could learn anything from New Zealand. So when I was approached by that publication, I said, okay, well, look, you know, I'm happy to write about New Zealand affairs for the consumption of an Australian audience. And they were adamant that I shouldn't do that. 
which I found really, really surprising. And they said that there is a growing interest in New Zealand affairs because they see us as this, this sort of social experiment that has gone so far down the path of wokeism that we can be used as a lesson to show the rest of the world what not to do. So they've given me a program of stuff that they'd like me to be writing about. I'll be I'll be writing one or two articles a month for them about those sorts of things. So in answer to your question, I'll be following uh, developments around the formation of the next government and their policy platform. I will be, as I always do, backing up other photographers in sketchy circumstances where they, they feel that they they need the support and moving, I think, perhaps a little little bit away from photography and more into what I'm better at doing, which is writing about things. I will be absolutely fascinated to read it. So what's the name of the uh, publication? It's Liberty Itch. Liberty Itch. We will make sure with the resources and the wonderful lizard inbox that we have that link. So if people want to check that out, they'll they can grab that link from us. It's interesting you say about the policies with the new government. So I had a conversation with some friends um, before we caught up today. And one of the things I find really fascinating, because I've been watching the media coverage quite closely across the election, and whilst they've been waiting to find out what the special votes would be. And one of the things that I've always found really fascinating is initially was the disbelief by many of the outcome of the election result for, for starters. And then now the multiple commentators over the weekend cite the great winner of the special votes was to party Māori because they've now created this overhang. And I just find that utterly fascinating because for me, the great winner was the fact that Winston Peters is now going to be guaranteed as being required to create and form a coalition government. And it's almost like he's become Voldemort. They dare to not speak his name because he's back. You know, it's uh, I find it rather fascinating. What have you what were your thoughts of the specials and that coming in over the weekend or just prior to the yeah, weekend? I agree. I, and I think one of the wonderful aspects of the lovable rogue that is Winston Peters is that he doesn't endear himself particularly well to the media. He just says, look, I don't want to talk about that. Go away. I think that's fantastic. In terms of the Maori electorates, I thought they did rather well mm. doing that by splitting between electorate and party in that manner. Uh, mm. It has served their purpose well. I think that was um, that was smart politicking. Yeah. I, I have a theory. I have a theory. And I have a theory that... I think there's going to be defections from the Labour Party, Māori caucus, into Te Party Māori. And I think that there is a new left block forming and the Labour Party are not going to be the major party in it. Well, I, I would certainly love to see that. And I think it would be righteous judgment upon their house uh, mm. after the six years. But that's just my political opinion. Yeah, um, it's... Yeah, it's it will be interesting to see, and it, it, I think there is lots of, as you said, it's interesting that the Liberty Itch has that sort of thought in regards to seeing where we we're going, because I think to a certain extent that they are correct. And one of the elements that I know I talk about a lot is the rise of identity politics within Maori culture, 
and Māoridom because it's creating a schism there and it's something that Te Pāti Māori have gone and latched onto and used it to best advantage and it will be interesting to see how Māori handle this, whether or not they will use it as a vehicle to try and achieve what it is that they want to achieve because so many of them are not down with this element and they but they don't necessarily speak up they keep very very quiet so it's yeah there's there's also a lot going on in that space as well which i'm you know hoping to follow so well i i, I hope you do with the marvelous di landy your your other guest i would certainly defer to her greater expertise in these matters whenever i've had opportunity to either speak with her or listen to her. It's, it's voices like hers which are, to my mind, the wisest to listen to. And some of the rhetoric that we we see from Te Pāti Māori is unhelpful and unnecessarily divisive, in, in my opinion. And I'm, I'm, I don't think that they're as representative, perhaps, of broader Māori interests as, as they once were. But as I say, I, I defer to other voices. Yeah which very much is what I have been doing. And there is, it's interesting too with those Māori electors as well, because there's not a lot of choice. And ones like Dai and Karina have, see, they've come off the Māori roll because there isn't enough choice. And if those seats do continue to exist, and I know that the ACT Party would love to see them disappear, but if they do continue with election cycles, it will be interesting to see whether or not uh, New Zealand First did what they did way back, I think, was it in the late 90s or early noughties, where they, in fact, held five of those Māori seats at one time because they were able to... You can get a much greater swing when you're dealing with a much, much smaller electorate, which is what you are essentially doing. So, yeah, it'd be quite fascinating. Well, Simon, it's been such a joy to chat to you. Anything else that you're going to be up to before we disappear that you'd like to share with us in terms of where people can find you if they want to interact with your content today? Uh, okay. Well, um, this week, and I, uh, you'll be able to find my column, my first column, which is rather cringy because it's it's they ask that I introduce myself by telling a story. So it's, it's rather autobiographical, and I, I promise that I won't write like that for them evermore. You can find my Twitter account. I'm at Simon R. Anderson one and you can find my my video f- content at Simon R. Anderson on YouTube. Fantastic. And, th- and thank you for having me on once again, Marie. It's just been delightful to speak with you. Oh, it's always a joy to speak to you. This has been Simon Anderson here on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear, of course. There's still more excellent content here to come, including Marty and I. We're going to be chewing over that decision, uh, those special votes decisions coming up post-election. That's all still here to come with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. Have you got your RCR merch yet? Our options are growing from pens to mouse pads, clothing to coffee cups, bumper stickers to bags, and the very, very popular fence signs. Helping us spread the word with a sign up on your fence or even just share some of the great RCR content via the easy shareable links on our new app. Every little bit helps to spread a little bit of reality every day. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. 
We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the App Stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. It is now time for Media Matters and my partner in crime as always is Marty Gibson. Good morning. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm surrounded by a mountain of newspaper. And of course, big weekend announcement and announcement of recounts for Friday. You guys did a bit of a rundown on political panel on Monday. It's pretty much now starting to come together for Christopher Luxon. Yeah, well, it, it should be. Uh, and and I mean, the thing I guess I, I said on the political panel, it'll be interesting to see how much of a stumbling block some of Winston Peters' differences on some of those uh, organisations like the WHO and these various health treaties that you didn't hear a squeak from uh, Luxon about or the World Economic Forum. I've heard uh, National Party candidates say that they're opposed to those organisations impinging on New Zealand sovereignty, but yeah, my experience is that, that might not represent the overall party view. I think uh, Christopher Luxon is a is a corporate guy through and through. Mm. One of the things that I've gotten annoyed with the media is there's been so much concentration on them assuming that Winston is going to be the handbrake in these negotiations. And that's not my vibe at all. I actually think um, they should be casting their eye across to David Seymour, not to Winston. Well, I mean, Claire Trevitt said that. She's saying Labour's got to rebuild. However, as Labour goes about that, those who sat around the Cabinet table in the 2017 to the 2020 term, watching as New Zealand First applied its famous handbrake, will not have much envy for the National-led Cabinet. Completely misunderstands perhaps obtusely, the difference between National and Labour. I mean, Labour are all about making radical change. They're the only party that does. And National are about doing what Labour did more efficiently. To expect uh, New Zealand First roles in those two things are quite different. You know, I'd say that while they're a handbrake to Labour, they'd they're be more likely to be a catalyst or an accelerator. Mm. Trying to get National to be a little bit bold about doing things that are in New Zealand's interests. Mm. Is it getting national to do what it says on the box? Exactly. Well, speaking of doing what it says on the box, somebody who seems very, very concerned about that is Andrea Barnes this week. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And she certainly seemed a bit unhinged, almost. We were very dark this week. Very dark. Yeah, she, she was maybe more Darth Vance. So it's personal for journalists about Winston Peters. That's something that's really coming across is it's he's annoyed them, but it's also there's a touch of consternation because, you know, while they're all saying, oh, he wants, I saw there was this big to-do about Andrew Williams. Mike Hosking was in full Grandpa Simpson as a young man mode, basically interviewing his microphone, trying to throw first Christopher Luxon off balance, and Christopher Luxon was using all his corporate media training to just keep, keep repeating the the corporate mantra. But David Seymour wasn't quite as uh, as good at that, and his um, he couldn't help but 
you know, throw more barbs in, even though it's absolutely not in his interest to do so. And he's going to pay for them. And, and I guess that's probably part of the game, isn't it? But yeah, Andrea Vance was was saying the world is a raging, belching binfire. The last thing it needs is Winston Peters throwing a fag end on the flames and grabbing the torch of New Zealand's foreign policy. What did you take from that? Because I, I, I thought she had a fair bit back to front. Yeah, well, she was implying that Peters was not an effective foreign minister, but everything that I've read in reports that I've seen up until that point was as he's exceptionally well respected when yeah. he's had his couple of, I think he's done the role twice. I think that was projection on her part. Yeah, she, and she, then she says, globally, populism appears to be on the wane with an emerging trend towards progressive centrism. It's, in whose mind, no, Andrea? Andrea? No. It's, it's, it's the opposite, buddy. Look at Spain. Look at Austria. Look at Italy. Look at what's about to happen in America, despite all you media lovies just hating Trump. It's so funny. I highlighted that as well. She follows it up saying, but many of the world's complicated problems have laid at the door of populist leaders who seduce with answers that are simple and usually wrong. Yeah, which I think a is a conflict. In the world at the moment, at the feet of corrupt, pedophilic, dementia-afflicted octogenarian that 83% of Labour-voting women approve of. Reactionary populism is now the biggest obstacle to tackling global warming. I would say the fact that it's not caused by anthropogenic CO2 is a major obstacle to tackle it the way you tackle it. The other thing too is there is a number of violent conflicts that is at the highest level since the end of World War II. Israel, Syria, Nagorno-Karabakh, I don't know that where that one is, uh, Sudan, Ethiopia, Niger and five other coups in the Francophile West Africa, Myanmar and of course Russia and Ukraine. Now you take Russia and Ukraine out of that mix. I don't know about the Nagorno-Karabakh one, that one I'm not aware of, but the rest of them all have one thread in common. It has got nothing to do with populism and everything to do with ideology and religion. Mm. I was listening to a podcast, and the bad thing about listening to podcasts rather than reading books is that if I read a book, I know exactly where what I read was, so I can go back to it, but... Often I can't even remember the podcast where I heard something. And I was listening to a podcast that I think Jordan Peterson was having with um, possibly an Israeli politician. He was saying in the entire conflict, and obviously this needs updating after the terrible events of the last couple of months, um, but he was saying the, the total um, deaths, Palestinian and uh, Israeli, in the whole conflict since whenever it started was about 130,000. And he said he was talking to some African politician who's in a country next to, I think, Sudan. And he said, oh, yeah, a bit of that spilled over and 400,000 people died. I'd never heard of it. Mm. It's always the difficulty about using the news to tell you who to feel more sorry for when they're tortured, raped and killed, is that there's awful things happening all over the world. Well, and this is the thing that I'm finding is that these awful things are happening all over the world, but when it does actually seep into the news cycle, that then says to me it's less about what is the atrocity that's going on in that place and more about the politics that's driving it, because mm. why else would it be there? Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know whether you wanted to get into Chloe Swarbrick. The masks coming off those ladies, isn't it? Mm. They're time. just 
I've deliberately not said much about this latest conflict between Hamas and and well, Palestinians broadly and and Israel because I don't know enough about it. It's awful. Any political abstract thing uh, point I might make just seems churlish and uh, distasteful in the face of the awful things that are happening. I, I'm with Donald Trump on that. I just want people to stop dying. Mm. The one pinch point for me is that if one side renounced violence, there'd be peace, and then maybe we could work through some of the injustices and unfairnesses. But if the other side renounced violence, there'd be genocide from the Jordan to the sea. Mm. And that's the side that Chloe Swarbrick's on. Loudly, I mean, you know, if she lived in Gaza, she'd end up getting towed uh, behind a motorbike until she was dead because they don't like lesbians over there, Chloe. Same with Projecto Gay Chihuahua, New Zealand's Ernesto Che Guevara. Oh, yeah, um, Ricardo. Yeah, he wouldn't last long there. And you can't ignore that. There is a policy of genocide, which isn't to say that, um, you know, it always does take two to tango, but uh, I'm not keen to be drawn on unpicking it. Mm-hmm. I, 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 what I'm more keen on is that New Zealand doesn't end up that way. And there are a fair number of people here who seem to be drawing a pretty firm parallel and saying which side they're on. And it's on the side that if the violence stopped, there'd be genocide. What I find exceptionally dangerous is how Marama Davidson and Debbie Nariwa-Pekka are trying to draw a comparison between the Palestinians in Gaza and the colonisation of Māori in New Zealand. And I just do not think that that is useful for any party whatsoever. And watching Chloe's speech, the thing that really struck me was, is why are you even there, Chloe? You, mm. you don't have a dog in this fight, Chloe, so why are you even there? I would yeah. be more understanding if there was a Palestinian standing up there with righteous indignation and anger because it is personal for them yeah. than her. Why is she there? I, I don't get that. I think that she's she's there to score political points. She's there to press her own agenda, and she's doing it on the back of these poor people who are and only trying disgusting. to be there. Yeah, and it is disgusting. And meanwhile, Phil Twyford... He got up to try and be a little bit more centred about things Mm. and practically, literally got booed off the stage and whisked away. Yeah, it's it's that uh, sacred anger. I raised this point on the political panel on on Monday. If you have a cultural thing where if something doesn't go your way or you suffer some minor insult, you just... Out of all proportion to what actually happened, the idea is that you psychologically shock your opponent into not doing it. That's what the the game the Maori Party or to Party Maori are, are playing as well. Old Slick Willie Jackson saying, "Oh, you know the, the I think if if they go ahead and disingenuously said treaty referendum." And so, if you read through Facebook, so many Maori, so many of the tutu are who aren't that well-educated and the Māori leaders don't seem to care, in fact, it suits them just fine that they're not educated, think it's about taking the Treaty of uh, Waitangi away. Mm. When it's not, it's about, hey, shall we have a talk about these principles of the treaty that dopey old Easter Island statue Geoffrey Palmer stuck in some legislation when he wanted to sell off? Oh, the state services legislation, exactly. Yeah, 
and, and said at the time, oh, you know, it's just window dressing. It's meaningless. And then, of course, you know, as we've said before, the old activist judges come in, give it meaning, and now we're stuck with it. And any, hey, can we have a talk about ah, sacred anger? Yeah. And, and hey, we, we've got to just face it down. We've got to face that haka. Maybe pick up the wero, you know, and say, okay, let's let's have a chat about it. Because I mean, I'm all about, you know, if there has been injustice, let's talk about it. But let's talk about it as a country. Do we believe that Pākehā don't own any of this land? You know, who may benefit in some ways from it, but you know, is there a blood libel on us? Is there intergenerational guilt? When Willie Jackson was interviewed on TV a while ago concerning the, the genocide on the Chatham Islands, the interviewer asked him whether or not he felt any responsibility for it. And he replied, look, I'm not responsible for the actions of my ancestors. You know, again, That's very, right, Willie. you're not very, very sensitive to any insult to him, very insensitive to what he says himself. That's narcissism, Willie. It's not good. The one thing with Chloe, and as I said, why was she even there? What I get angry about is she's up there, she gives this impassioned speech, and as you said, there was an unmasking. Where is that passion for, for the likes of Baby Roo? Where is that passion for the failing education statistics? If you are that concerned about poverty and identity yeah. in this country, where is the concern for the failing of our Māori and Pacifica children within the education system? Where is the anger and indignation in terms of our woeful suicide statistics, our woeful statistics around domestic violence? Where is even the indignation in keeping our rivers and our oceans pollution-free, Chloe? I'd even accept that from you more. Why are you trying to put a dog in this fight where you have no place to do it? And I, yeah, I, I have to admit, I had to step away from the, the phone and put it down and give myself a wee rest. I was actually quite annoyed by that. I really was. And yet you've got people like Andrea Barnes who believes that somebody like Winston Peters... And even to a lesser extent, Christopher Luxon, who both have parties, as you in New Zealand first, Peters has always been very upfront about the fact that he will look after what is important to New Zealand first. So as a foreign minister, his role is to go out there and look after the needs of this country first. And I, one of the things I quotes I found really interesting with this is MFAT staffers are said to be slavering at the prospect of Peter's reinstatement anticipating a healthy budget boost. During the past two terms, they were left largely to their own devices. During that period, New Zealand's status and relevance has gone backwards. We were excluded from AUKUS and signed a subpar EU trade deal. The ministry's exceptionalism is a problem. Its high opinion of itself is not shared by other diplomats. Now, the thing is, is that's top down. Who was the person that held that role for the large majority of that time? Nanaya Mahuta. What was the one thing that Nanaya Mahuta didn't like to do? Travel. Yeah, it was, it was always a, a bit tough seeing her on the world stage as well. But See, this is the thing, is that whilst she carries a lot of mana within her own community within Tainui, and I'm sure she does, that mana does not necessarily translate out into a world stage. And that is something that Winston Peters has. He has the mana and the ability to look at things within New Zealand 
as a New Zealander. I mean, he's a lawyer, he's smart, he's been around the traps for a long time. And ultimately, he knows the value of that position is order to position New Zealand in a way that we improve our relationships and our trade. And our relationships and our trade, that's what's going to keep food on the table. That's what's going to make our nation prosperous. It's not going to be whether or not we're signed up to a pandemic treaty or giving away our sovereignty hand yeah, over fist. The other, the other quote that was a face palmer for me was Peters is also an economic nationalist who has developed conspiracy level suspicion of international institutions. Now, here are we talking about the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the UN, the UN, the International Monetary Fund, probably. You don't need theories. You can read these organizations' websites and their press releases. And I guess you can watch how you can see some, as when Chris Hipkins was prime minister or Dern was prime minister, he comes up with some policy and you think, well, where the hell did that come from? And you can go to the World Economic Forum and there's something there that was a press release a month or so ago. So, you know, to characterize that as conspiracy theory... I guess if there's a conspiracy theory for me in this, it was the paucity of coverage of it by New Zealand's bought and paid for media who, who just never saw fit to comment on the dangers of giving our sovereignty away to organisations like the World Economic Forum who are subsidised or funded by pharmaceutical companies and act in their interests. Well, it's when you look at, you know, she's obviously worried about, and a lot of these journalists, as you say, what they're worried about is they're probably sitting there thinking, but why are we doing this? I mean, foreign affairs, we don't have to worry about that anymore. The UN have yeah. got their sustainable development goals. Isn't that what we're doing for our foreign affairs now? No. There's a Chinese word for her, uh, which is baijiao. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it it's a Chinese word for Westerners who, uh, you know, I guess like Chloe Swarbrick, refugees welcome, importing people with a culture that says they should be destroyed. The self-destructive impulse the West has had and the characterization of any thought that we should look after our own interests, put our own oxygen masks on first so we can help others, so to speak. Yeah, um, indeed. Anything like that is is characterized as a regression to the colonial colonist impulse. It's all just Marxism. Yeah, who's saying that uh, there's an emerging trend towards progressive centrism. I mean, progressivism is basically an all-encompassing phrase for this godless, global Marxist managed collapse of the West. Well, I mean, progressive centralism, I'm sorry, that's an oxymoron yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Well, unless you are looking at it through a lens where the Overton window has had such a seismic shift to the left that anything that is essentially to the, to the centre of the Green Party is considered centrist. So I spoke to Simon Anderson just before we started. Now, he was the chap who did a lot of the filming with the Posey. He did the Posey Parker rally in March, and he's now been doing a lot of filming and a lot of the protests. And I said to him, you know, I have a theory. <laughs> Stop it. I have a theory, mum. You know, I looked at that speech with Chloe. I've seen how the Māori Party have conducted themselves, now emboldened by their overhang and their tremendous success within the Māori electorates. I am seeing a new left block forming, which is the Māori Party and the Green Party, and they may let the Labour Party play along, but 
depending on what happens and depending on whether or not Labour want to go back to their traditional union-based working class roots, there may not be a place for them in that that new left bloc. Well, Willie Jackson actually alluded to this, and he's alluded to it several times. I mean, he said uh, as far back in March uh, this year, uh, there's not that much difference between the aspirations of the Māori Party and the, and the Labour Party Māori Caucus. We take a slightly more subtle way of getting there, and they are just, you know, mm-hmm. right at it. I and, think you know, a lot of that Māori Caucus will jump. Well, I mean, the question is, if you took the most barking, mad, loony left of the Green Party, mixed it in with Te Party Māori, and then mixed it in with the Māori Caucus, you've you've got mm. well, you've got twenty percent anyway. I would think. Well, yeah. well, Calvin, 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 <laughs> I don't think will survive his recount. So, and he has said that he will resign. So, unless Calvin goes back to teaching, he's going to need a job. And <coughs> I wonder whether or not he will end up over on that side of the fence. You know, the one Māori voice in all of this, and I mentioned it to Karina a while ago, that has been exceptionally quiet. And I'm rather surprised at how quiet that they've been, has been Honi Hadawera. Have you got any thoughts on why that might be? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I, I just wonder whether our Honi has been bought and paid for to keep very quiet. Oh, I've got a different theory to that. Oh, go on. Well, I think he took a reasonable amount of cash to get jabbing up there. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, right. That's exactly what I mean. We all know that anything that came with that... They were rather fond of NDAs yeah, and things that you can and can't say if you take that money. It's dirty money. I'm sorry, as far as I'm concerned, dirty money. The graft was incredible. And I hope that there's, you know, again, I was so heartened to see Shane Jones on on, uh, election night when it appeared that uh, New Zealand First were in for for the first time and it appeared that, you know, that was – going to happen when he was asked, you know, if they had a bottom line. And the first thing he said was, well, we want a full COVID inquiry. And I think that will will reveal all sorts of things. And I think if there's a sticking point in the coalition talks, it will be that Luxon and Seymour are donkey deep in a lot of that stuff. And they don't really want that distraction. Mm -hmm. But as I've said, so many of the problems that we're facing uh, have their roots going down into lies. You can't build a nation on lies. No. And and, and that includes, you know, lies about, you know, injustices that Māori suffered. I, I'm not racially picking a side on this. I, I'm, I'm picking the truth. You know, we need to look at where the roots of the transgender fetishes go into. They go into pedophile academics. The roots of, of this new co-governance and principles of the treaty thing. They have their roots in some bullshit, as I said earlier, that Jeffrey Palmer came up with to get his mates to buy state-owned enterprises at knockdown prices. Mm. The list goes on and on. If so, I mean, one of the things that I will be intrigued with Luxon is that he is a corporate animal. Now, if he is the sort of corporate animal, I think I mentioned this last week, that I hope that he is, that's where Peter's, I believe, for him will be totally invaluable. Because if you've got someone that delivers ideas that you know are not going to be palatable to a certain se- section of the country that have had control for such a long time and the media, you need somebody that's going to be able to handle the, the squawking. 
And Peters is the guy. I mean, the paper was full of it, how they were complaining about how Peters was not wanting to engage with media over the current negotiations for coalition. Well, hello, people. He's never engaged with the media (laughs) over these facts. This is nothing new. And you know what? He doesn't care. He really, he just was like, talk to the I think beyond that, he positively relishes it and he's just watching what happens and he's keeping his power to dry and he's thinking... Well, you know, it's going to be interesting for when I'm broadcasting this. I likened, uh, we had a conversation earlier, and I likened the media to zoo animals that are used to being fed at 4 p.m. every day, and suddenly the feedings have stopped, and um, they're walking around in circles wondering what to do, and they're sort of neurotically interviewing their keyboards or microphones and just coming up with wilder and wilder hypotheticals rather than an actual analysis of the state of the country. Now they're free of the iron grip of having to say certain things to keep the uh, cash tap on. Well, they Um, were so deep into the echo chamber, I really don't believe they saw this coming. Well, it's the Wellington Central block that voted Greens and should have to live under Green Rule. Oh, they've got Green here. They should have to pay the wealth tax. Yeah, Yeah, I Uh, thought that was a great idea. Fran O'Sullivan... um, said of uh, Christopher Luxon, the senior directors at Air New Zealand recognised him as a strong strategic scenario builder and planner when it came to confirming his appointment as chief executive 11 years ago. But what set him above the competition was his immense self-belief in his ability to execute and their confidence he would meet targets. None of that really speaks to a deep, soulful conviction vision, does it? And that's what's missing from him. Mm. I, I never really hear a vision from him. I hear cracking down on gangs, getting back on track. I hear, you know, what she's talking about. I, you know, I feel mean being mean to Christopher Luxon sometimes. Well, no, I, I'm I, sure I, he's a nice guy, but well, he's David I, Brent. Well, <laughs> I'm looking at it and I'm thinking he's exceptionally vanilla. And then you oh, you, yeah. th- you throw in, you know, the, the the little bit of chocolate with Winston. He's, you know, will spice things up a little bit. And Seymour, well, you know. Well, the status quo isn't good enough. Like we, we really do need to radically change how we're thinking. We need to integrate the various peoples of New Zealand so we can become more than the sum of our parts. That's a phrase I, I've used a bit in various settings, but it, I, I believe it so strongly. If you see Māori and Pākehā working together, we're so good. And uh, you can read books about uh, Māori battalions. I've got Monty Suter's um, Excellent books on that and the First World War one. And also playing rugby. You get Māori and Pākehā on the same team with a clear vision, man, we're unbeatable. Mm. And mm. so it breaks my heart to see all this division and all this, you know, herding Māori in one area, keeping them poorly educated, keeping the handout for guilt, grievance, money, and just building all this resentment into poorly educated young people and, you know, valuing that they all think the same. It's not anti-Māori to find that repugnant. It's pro-Māori. Yeah. We talked about unconstrained and constrained visions last week. And so if you want a real-world example of those, the unconstrained vision was certainly the Chloe Swalbrick speech in the domain. If you want an example of the constrained vision this week, I believe that was with Stephen Joyce in the Saturday Herald. A job for a new government, the regulatory rollback, action is needed and fast to create momentum and cut spending. You had a really, really interesting thought on this before we got started. 
And that was, he was putting it out there that he wants skin in the game. That he's a girl dropping hints that she wants to be asked out but won't make the first move. Well, it was, he's, he actually did say it, I think, quite openly. He says here, Willis needs a hand-picked team backed by Treasury to go all around unearthing these savings opportunities as quickly as possible, thereby building her savings war chest and can be reapplied to other initiatives to tax relief in probably the next year's budget. I mean, if that doesn't say pick me, pick me, I don't know what does. Well, it doesn't say pick me, but I hope that they do pick him. Man, if I were in that government, because they're, they're pretty light on experience having been so badly cleaned out at the last election. So, you know, that's that's the other thing about having to include some ACT and, um, and New Zealand First MPs in the cabinet is that a lot of them have got more experience than the national ones. But, man, Stephen Joyce is a guy, and you probably wouldn't even have to pay him that much. I was saying, you know, when you're reading this article and it details, the government could have paid $100,000 for this report. It's that concise and grasps the most important points so well. Yeah, and also too, he talks about the things that they have in common. See, these are things that can hit, you can yeah. hit, literally hit the ground running with because they are commonalities across all three parties. Job one is the regulatory rollback. These are the economy-stifling laws passed by the previous government that take the wrong direction and which National and its associates have collectively pledged to remove from the statute books. Things such as rolling back the RMA reforms, the Three Waters legislation, fair pay agreements and the oil and gas ban. Some sort of omnibus regulatory rollback law to be passed before Christmas with the support of all coalition partners would make sense, followed by a second one in the first half of next year with more difficult jobs. Priority should be given to changing laws that stifle investment and growth. There's a sort of real baked-in fear of business people that comes from, in no small part, I think, not knowing what a struggle it is. Yeah, I think I think there's that vision of, and you saw that in John Campbell's just terrible, oh, yeah. Well, it benefits property owners, but no, no, no. This zero-sum game thing of, well, what's good for business people is going to be bad for the poor. I talked a bit on uh, Monday's show about the Luciferian habit of inverting things. So rather than build a strong economy and then have wages rise, the last Labour government jacked wages up and unsurprisingly the the economy's fizzled. They um, put politics upstream of culture instead of the other way around and unsurprisingly it turned into an overly repressive society shall we say Mm. well we've been living in the fable that fable of the ants and the cricket the our public sector primarily our public sector have been the crickets they've been out there they've been living high on the hog the sun's been shining on them you know if only those business people would understand they've had everything their own way and those ants keep getting in the way and they keep you know crossing their paths all the time and they keep filling things up and they're no fun and they're not spreading glitter and rainbows everywhere and they just they just keep getting onto their work and marching on what they're doing and grouping together and and conserving and just being awfully dull. And now that the economic winter has arrived and we're having a change in leadership that will presage this potential economic winter and hopefully try and stave it off, all of a sudden there's a lot of crickets out there that are going to get very, very cold and they've got nothing. They've got no fat to come and go on because they haven't conserved anything. Yeah, especially if you think what someone doing an equivalent task to what a lot of public servants do in the private sector could expect to get paid. I've written a bit about 
the the East versus West uh, in terms of medicine and government. Wrote a, a column about that, and it's a it's a theory of mine that I'm I'm always fleshing out a little bit. But I think uh, you, in terms of the country, I'm, I'm interested to see that they're talking about regionalism. And Steve Joyce touches on this. Couple that with the government deciding on its approach to regionalism. The previous government's control freakery saw Wellington take even more control of big areas of life as diverse as health, education, water services, with the predictable result of even bigger bureaucracies and more poorly performing frontline services. With a swag of new regional MPs and New Zealand First as a partner, the government will be predisposed to trust regional leadership more. Its regional deals idea has real merit. The trick will be applying that regionalization actively across a range of policy areas with the express purpose of shifting decision-making closer to the front line. Hmm. And that's so important because it allows you to customise what you're doing. You just have to look at things like tipukenga. I mean, we talk about tefata order all the time because that's something mm. that you and I both have in one way, form, or another, have skin in the game over. But tipukenga, which is the the polytech merger, that was a shit show six ways to Sunday, and that's where that regional knowledge is really important because those institutions are vital at getting communities, regional communities educated and out of that poverty cycle that they're in. And in this region, the um, it was EIT, but there was the Tairawhiti Polytech in Gisborne, which is a, was an incredible uh, facility up there. It got merged with what was the Eastern Institute of Technology here. And they do really practical stuff. They do training in forestry, training in trades, training, um, heavy licensing. Mm. I actually worked for, worked, worked for EIT. I did their media for a bit. They weren't as integrated into the community as they should have been then. So, you know, the, the, so the, centralising it even more into Puking, it would have been even worse. You know, we, uh, you know, without going into too much detail, I'd sort of said at one point, look, we should have the guy who's teaching, taking the engineering pre-apprenticeship class, go around every fifth form maths class and say, hey, look, you know, I know you're starting to get to the stage where you're starting to learn things like trigonometry and algebra, and maybe it seems a bit abstract, and you're thinking, well, where am I going to use it? But, you know, if you please stick with it because it's useful in this, and this means that after a four-year apprenticeship, you can earn the whole time, and you can come out, and you can have $60,000 and a, and a company vehicle, and you can be traveling the world you can go anywhere and be doing something useful. So it's really important that you keep your maths going. I said, if you do that year on year, you'll start to get ahead of... Well, they used candidate. to do that. They yeah, used but to apparently schools didn't want... that. Schools measured their success on how many of the students went to university. And so they'd oh. sort of blocked it. So, yeah, you really need to get in and start cracking some heads within these little fiefdoms that form in small towns, and God knows... Yeah, there are a I lot of those the, in Gisborne. I know the exception to that is Lytton High School in Gisborne, which I think is your old. Um, yeah. And they had a program there because it's very high Māori enrolment there. And my cousin worked for EIT and she uh, was with the hairdressing program. So she mm. was actually helping students transition from. Yeah, there uh, are some really good transitioning really, programs. Yeah. And, and, you know, like. But as not I, said, enough. I, don't, I don't want to be unkind. I, mm. I did love the institution. The lecturers were great. You know, the students were fantastic. And that was a bit I really loved about that job because I got to see, I got to talk to so many different young kids. And I'd talk, I remember, I mean, just off the top of my head, 
yeah, just some of these Māori kids who were the first in their whānau to get a qualification and how proud everyone was and how it was informed by, you know, seeing their elderly 60-year-old grandparents still having to go and work out in the fields for near minimum wage. That moment that people get when they think, I want better for myself. And this is why, without wanting to go around in loops too much, I I get so angry with leaders telling kids, hey, the system wants to see you fail. These people don't want to see you get ahead. I loved seeing them get ahead. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. And there's so much green fields that this new government could could get into. And they really have to start calling out these leaders on their lackadaisical attitudes to poor academic performance as well. The poor entrainment of bits of culture like learning to read and reading to kids because it's not Māori. And the the Weasley academics saying this, they can read. They got a good education. They were good in school. Maybe they got some some crap about not being Māori enough and they wanted to come back to the marae. And so the best way to get back in the fold was say, oh, those Pākehās hate you. (laughs) You know, there's a bit of that. Mm. But as I said, more than the sum of our parts. No, indeed. I'm just going to do a little bit more on the Stephen Joyce because it is that good if you didn't get a chance to see it. First, uh, he then says task number two is getting started on fiscal repair. This too will be a long job, but the new finance minister will need to demonstrate early intent. Nicola Willis has indicated she will move quickly with the mini-budget before Christmas. Whether a full mini-budget is possible in the time now available will be resolved in the coming days, but there is a definite need for a round of sacred cow culling sacred cow culling in order to stop spending money on doom projects. First on the chopping block will obviously be the big and expensive of lemons, such as the Onslow Power Scheme, Auckland's Light Rail and the ironically named Let's Get Wellington Moving. But there are a number of things that need a big red cancelled stamp in order to start stemming the flow of taxpayer cash out the door. The new bureaucracies that achieve nothing in actual service delivery, for example, such as the Māori Health Authority and Te Pukenga Head Office. There you go. Mm. Probably all that money's borrowed and spent in terms of the officers being there. Yeah, I know. Oh. It's just the wastage. And and I guess that's the difficulty too, because the only thing that Labour and the Greens can argue and push back against from the crossbenchers will be, you've just wasted hundreds of millions of dollars of what we had spent by yeah, rolling we, the stuff the, Their big call was, hey, what we were doing was just starting to work. Old Mike Monroe said that last week, didn't he? He did well, and Shane Depoe actually did. That was he touched on that a little bit too. Um, did Shane the opportunity for Labour is now to seize? He was saying, and he he was going on about again, you know, what they did so well, which was spend money. They didn't achieve yeah. anything; they just yeah. spent a lot of money. A long hundred billion dollars, Shane. I can do all sorts of things. I could give you PR stories for Africa. Yeah. He says here, parties of the left have to work much harder to show the public they can be responsible with the national finances. There's a reason for that, Shane. That explains why Labour and the Greens signed up to the budget responsibility rules in 2017. They needed to show that they were ready for government. While the public may not have entirely believed them, it did enough to quell public concern and that helped win the election. No, it didn't. Mm. Winston turned around and chose you as a coalition partner and not Bill English. 
But anyway, I digress. Alongside that prudence in 2017, the Labour Party also had a spending plan and families package that saw thousands of kids lifted out of poverty. It also delivered the first well-being budget and much-needed investment started to flow into health and education. Again, nothing about outcomes. All yeah. flows in, no outcomes it's flow out. terribly bourgeois concept, Marie. You're saying the big problem was the party never set out a vision of what a good economy looked like. It never brought the voters in on what they themselves should be getting, uh, on how the government was going to make life better and crucially easier for them. The reason for that, Shane, is because their vision was Klaus Schwab's vision. You know, if you look at James Shaw's first hand-wringing letter to the Climate Commission, it's stating that the two biggest threats to New Zealand climate projects or adventures or whatever were um, economic growth and population growth. Well, they got in and solved those two things, didn't they? You can't really sell the public on that vision. No. You know what we're going to do? We're going to reduce the live birth rate by uh, 27%. We're going to raise the disability levels to, by 38%. Going to get the excess deaths up 14%. How does that sound? Mm. Vote for me. Uh, the other thing, and this goes back to what I said earlier, Labor can look overseas for examples of this done well. US President Joe Biden. I do always kind of think, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? Because, I mean, you know, I'm an old white guy, and that old white guy gives me the creeps just for his oldness and whiteness. He's just ghastly. And just the incompetence, the 7 million people that are now in the States that they've just let flood over the border because they believe, I mean, Hillary Clinton said there should be no national borders in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that Simon mentioned in our interview was he has a concern now with the current crisis that is happening in the Middle East is leading into Armistice and Remembrance Day in the United Kingdom, he has a great concern because tensions are so high over there that it is a tinderbox and it will only take a very, very small spark to potentially set off a massive amount of unrest. Yeah. <laughs> and again, bearing in mind that this is a religious conflict. Okay, it's yes, it is a humanitarian disaster, but at its core, this is a religious conflict that has been going on for thousands of years. So when you're dealing with that, and the left have spent a massive amount of time in the last, what, six, seven years to try and tampen down Islamophobia, there is still a radical nature within that religion. There just is. Now, I'm not trying to well, say... Well, it's a radical me. religion. Islamophobia... I mean, phobia is a, an irrational fear. I've read the Quran. I, I, I kind of get what they want to do. It's not irrational. So, the, um, so and if you get if you get a reformation of Christianity, it gets better. If you get a reformation of Islam, you get, get Hamas. You yeah. get Saudi Arabia. So the concern is, if something sparks off in a Western centre as opposed to the Middle East, and we even saw little sparks of that after the rep the incorrect reportage of the bombing of the hospital in Gaza, if something bigger sparked off with the number of illegal immigrants that have flowed across borders, whether they be in Europe or the United States, I think that there could be things that actually happen within those Western nations that could really 
I mean, it will be wow. an Arab Spring like you've not seen anywhere before. Yeah, I mean, I, you you take a less cynical view of it than me, Marie. I, I, I think it's quite deliberate. You know, if you know about the Kalergi plan, it, it's to have a brown-skinned people of Europe. Angela Merkel won the Kalergi Prize. She led a million military-aged males into her country. And if you look at European sex education videos, they show brown men coupling with white women. It's so, so brazen. It's incredible. So, I mean, women and children flee combat zones. Most of the people coming across the US border, most of the people coming into Europe are military-aged males. Mm. The, the idea that it's just happening accidentally, and it isn't in the interests of the people who print the money, send military-aged males with a chauvinistic religion that uh, tells them that they should conquer uh, the infidels who you've disarmed. To think it's uh, all accidental is, is childlike in its naivety. Mm, indeed. Yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm getting down on on Muslims either. You know, my interactions with Muslims actually very similar to my interactions with, with gang members overwhelmingly positive you know i've met so many lovely uh muslim people that they're, they're, they're great uh and i've met a lot of really interesting pleasant gang members but i've also had one or two terrifying experiences with both groups and i don't think either necessarily are a great idea mm. and that again there's light and dark in all human nature isn't there yeah yeah We'll have to watch this space, but it does concern me. The one thing I got, I, re- I got Monday's paper about the number of COVID vaccines wasted. Oh, I actually, funny you should mention that. I do have that too. So this was in terms of not only the vaccines, I think it was also uh, PPE and the like. Is um... Well, just the vaccines. 1.7 million doses of Novavax, 1.4 million doses of the original Pfizer vaccine, 71,000. 442 doses of its bivalent vaccine, 135,000 doses of the pediatric vaccine, and 6590 doses of the infant vaccine. Never heard of many uh, infants being badly affected by COVID, but there we go. Mm -hmm. And because uh, Jamie Morton didn't do the sums, I did them. That's $116.3 million that we've just wiped our bums with. You throw the PPE onto that. Yeah, okay. and half a billion dollars of uh, rat tests, right? Uh, yeah, no. So New Zealand is to dump $286.8 million worth of expired COVID-19 health supplies. It has emerged that the government is poised to dispose of over a quarter of a billion, that's billion with a B, worth of expired COVID-19 tests and personal protective equipment accumulated during... You know, we've just had a little thing with plastic bags... <laughs> Uh, stockpile included rapid antigen tests, masks and gowns amounting to 1.3 tonnes of now unusable equipment. Now, Chloe, why weren't you a bit passionate up on the stage talking about that, eh? Why weren't you talking about that? Isn't that in your wheelhouse, bet? Anyway, to far to order, the National Health Agency has been tasked with the disposal process with the value of the discarded items at $286.8 million. The figure was calculated based on the average cost of the standard pallet quantities, the gear disru- described as a pandemic insurance in case supply chain disruptions. Why would they throw away PPE? It doesn't expire. Why not just stick it in the warehouse? Maybe I should buy it. They've gone and contacted a external contractor to, to get rid of it. Maybe I can it, get paid to have it. 
<laughs> well, the other side of it is that if it if it's such a concern because there's a date stamped on the outside of it, and therefore your regulations within Tafatu Aura, because you're all process driven there, and some jumped up nurse that's been given a managerial job with a six figure salary, but I'm not going to split that here right now, says that you can't use it because the date on the outside says that it's expired. Fucking donate it to Israel and Gaza then, if you're that worried about yeah. it. I'm sure they could use gloves. Gowns and masks, <laughs> yeah, across there. I'm sure that they could use that. I just ugh, wasteful spending. Anyway, do you want some uh, feedback? Yeah. That always makes you feel better. All right, okay. Uh, from Bronwyn, hi Marie, caught up on your show over the weekend. I always listen to media matters, but this week was a whole new awesome. It was. We were good last week. We were both oh. very happy with last week. I especially loved hearing from Neil again. Uh, as your first interview with him just boggled my mind to hear what was going on in the knitting world. <laughs> you have no idea, my friend, of the twisted web that we weave in the knitting world. I'll have to get someone to make me a jersey. <laughs> uh, this is from Libby Kiora Marie. Just wanted to say how amazing your friend Marty is. Oh, so. So understated, but after nearly a year of listening to his quiet, respectful, non-ego contributions to RCR, he is definitely one of the best thoughtful humans we have in New Zealand. So well-read, so beautiful. Please tell him how grateful I am for his insights. Cheers, Libby. Not helping the non-ego, Libby. Not helping the (laughs) non-ego. Thanks very much. I really appreciate that. Much love always, actually, on that one from Libby. So thank you, Libby. This one is from Aroha. I love the show. Tell Marty um, where he can find the Kate Hanna open letter with the archives. And I think you got forwarded that link to that, yep, didn't you? Thanks yep. for that. Thank you for that. This uh, just this one from the text machine. Uh, work gangs, yes. Wood chips to a use. Recycling gag members to work off their sentences. Great idea. This one is also saying another one saying prefer gangs to wear patches so I know I can give them a wide berth. Another from the text machine. Bruce Cottrell is the best. Always look forward to his column. So lots of really good positive feedback for us for last week. Oh, good. Well, I'm pleased that uh, people are enjoying uh, listening to it. We enjoy doing it. I always look forward to to doing it. No, we do enjoy doing it. And if you've got more feedback, remember you can send that to us at inbox at realitycheck.radio or the text number, of course, is 2057. We've covered a lot of ground but not covered a lot of ground today, but it has been very good as always. And yeah, next week is another week, Martin. Yeah, well, thanks again, Marie, and uh, have a great week, everyone. Yeah, same to you. Don't disappear. Coming up, Woke News of the Week here on Reality Check Radio. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media. And now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Welcome to the Woke News of the Week. Firstly, Woke News broadcaster MSNBC lost 
33% of its primetime viewers during the coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. The outlet's viewer figures were down 24% overall for the four days between October 7 and October 10, which saw the outbreak of the war between Israel and Hamas. By comparison, the shocking event saw a leap in Fox News' audience up 42%, and in CNN's coverage, which saw a 17% rise in viewers. These numbers tell you a lot about MSNBC, which excels at Trump-era liberal therapy but can't match others during global historic events, Puck Media reporter Dylan Byers wrote. MSNBC has come under fire for its coverage of the atrocities in Israel with an Israeli mother who had two sons taken hostage by Hamas. Renana Gome, whose two sons aged 12 and 16 were kidnapped by Hamas and became visibly irritated when Andrea Mitchell from MSNBC asked her how her feelings were on the attacks in Gaza. The culture war has now transected with the actual war and many American viewing audiences are waking up and switching off as the effects of the conflict reverberate around the world. Anti-ESG company continues to seek loopholes to further its success. Fresh off its summer initial public offering, the conservative e-commerce company Public Square has a novel business and legal strategy. Find loopholes in public company regulations its executive believes are antithetical to its anti-woke brand. The venture started in 2021 as an online directory of businesses that affirmed conservative beliefs and went public in July. The brand, much like the businesses on the platform, touts a conservative ethic and is part of the broader movement to support merchants who do not factor environmental, social and governance concerns into their business decisions. As it works to cement its place atop a conservative shopping ecosystem, Public Square's leader has also expressed a distaste for ESG regulations and conservatives have labelled woke like the Securities and Exchange Commission's pending climate disclosure and the potential human capital rules or NASDAQ's board diversity requirements, the latter of which are recently upheld in court. We're not afraid to set some precedent if it comes to that and push back against some of the forces that we're trying to act in a way that we believe is sort of antithetical to the true dream of real equality, Public Square CEO and founder Mark Seaford, 28, said in an interview with Bloomberg Law. Enter Grok, Elon Musk's anti-woke chatbot with a side of spice. Elon Musk unveiled Grok Saturday, a snarky anti-woke AI chatbot that has access to all tweets, giving real-time knowledge about the world. If you can call everything on X knowledge, it's built on Grok One, the first large language model from the billionaire's artificial intelligence company XAI. Grok will answer spicy questions with a bit of wit and humour, making it like the CEO. The chatbot from XAI aims to design AI tools that are useful to people of all backgrounds and political views. Musk criticised OpenAI, a company he founded and left in the past, for being too politically correct, saying the danger of training AI to be woke. In other words, lie is deadly, Musk said. Brock is a powerful leg up on other chat GPT models due to its access to real-time information, a huge limiting factor for the other models. The AI chatbot rolled out in limited numbers this past weekend, but will ultimately be available to all X Premium Plus users for a $16 a month fee. Musk showcased 
XAI's real-time abilities on X, where Grok was able to answer a question about what Joe Rogan was wearing in a recent interview. Musk spoke to a summit on AI in the UK last week where he warned UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak that AI will ultimately take a significant number of human jobs. Musk urged AI labs to pump the brakes on the new powerful large language models in March, saying they present a profound risk to society and humanity. Musk's innovation on a less politically correct AI comes as many companies are working to make their chatbox responses even safer and ultimately more dull. And finally, the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship Conference was held in London recently and brought together some of the greatest current critical and classical minds in two days of thought-provoking conversation and discussion. Much of the content of the weekend is available on YouTube, and the speech that stood out for me was one from Constantin Kisson, writer, cultural commentator, founder, and co-host of Trigonometry. Here is what he had to say. Hello, and thank you. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said that the strength or weakness of a society depends more on the level of its spiritual life than on its level of industrialization. If a nation's spiritual energies have been exhausted, he said, it will not be saved from collapse by the most perfect government structure or by any industrial development. A tree with a rotten core cannot stand. When he was allowed to leave the USSR, Solzhenitsyn went to the US where he was given a hero's welcome. But he quickly realized that American society was far from perfect. He started lecturing Americans about the problems he saw. Americans don't like that. Like Solzhenitsyn, I come from the Soviet Union, but I have no intention of repeating his mistake. That's why I've come to Britain. (laughs) Where you love being told what's wrong with you by foreigners. (laughs) But I do have to be honest, six months ago when Jordan and Philippa asked me to come here and speak at ARC about the importance of audacity adventure and a positive vision for our civilization, I was honored and delighted. But as I stand here today, after watching crowds openly celebrate mass murder on the streets of our cities, after watching the police spend more time debating Islamic theology on Twitter than enforcing the law, I'm starting to lose faith. I don't know how long our civilization will survive. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. Now, look, I'm not going to be all doom and gloom. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. (laughs) But joking aside, I have to be honest, I've been in a dark place these last few weeks. So I did what I always do when I don't know what to do. I talked to my wife. It's not the only time I talk to her, but you don't get the point. And she said, look, you just, you need, a, you need to clear your mind, take a few days off, let's go on holiday. And I know it's a weird thing to say, I don't like going on holiday, because I love working and I hate spending money. Protestant work ethic in a Jewish man's body. My wife is exactly the other way around, unfortunately. But she was right. She's always right. That's her best and most annoying quality. Um, So we went to Barcelona, beautiful city. And as we were walking down the main tourist street, La Rambla, 
many of you will know, when you get to the bottom, you hit the Christopher Columbus monument. And it looks like a giant column with a pillar of Columbus on top, pointing towards the new world. And this reminded me of my son, Nikolai. He's 16 months, and this is what he does. He sits on my hip uh, and points in the direction he wants to go. <laughs> Treats me like a horse, basically. And if I don't act quickly enough, or if I don't comply, he does what all toddlers do. He throws a tantrum and starts screaming, how dare you? You have stolen my dreams with your empty words. <laughs> and when he does, we read him a story and put him to bed. We don't give him a standing ovation in front of the UN. Anyway, trigger warning, I am going to talk positively about Christopher Columbus. I know he committed some pretty sizable microaggressions, but he also changed the world. Do you know why he changed the world? Yeah, he tried to reach India and by accident discovered America, but why go west to India? Europeans had been trading with India and China for centuries via the Silk Road. Why risk your life to go out on a limb? There were many reasons, of course, but the main one was the decision to try and reach Asia by going west was not made out of choice. Europe was desperate. Only a few decades prior, in 1453, the Ottomans sacked Constantinople and they cut Europe off from the Silk Road. The west was facing a huge challenge and a new threat, no smaller than the one we face today. And like us, what they needed was another way. But when Columbus took his idea to go west to India to the kings and queens of medieval Europe, they laughed at him. They didn't laugh at him because he was some misunderstood genius. He wasn't Galileo. They laughed at him because he was wrong. If you go out in the street and ask a random person why Columbus discovered America, they'll tell you he worked out that the earth was round. Not true. By the time Columbus set off on his voyage in 1492, people had known the Earth was round for two millennia. There's probably more flat Earthers now than there were in the 15th century. <laughs> God bless the internet. <laughs> the reason Columbus discovered America is not that he'd worked out that the Earth was round. The reason is that he massively underestimated the size of the planet. They were right to laugh at him. He was wrong. But he took that wrongness, he persuaded 90 other men to get into three boats smaller than the size of this stage and sail into the unknown. And he persuaded Queen Isabella of Castile and King Ferdinand of Aragon to fund his voyage. The moral of the story is, it doesn't matter how wrong you are as long as you've got rich friends. <laughs> That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is, the history of our civilization was not made by people who always got everything right. It was made by people who'd made mistakes too. It was made by people who dared to believe that they could solve the problems they faced. The story of the West is a story of audacity. The big debates of the last decade, the culture war, the polarization, are about one thing and one thing only, the future. There are people like us in this room who believe that our future is to be prosperous, powerful, and influential. 
We are the majority. But there are also some people whose brains have been broken by an excess of education, who believe that our history is evil, that we do not deserve to be great, we do not deserve to be powerful, that we must be punished for the sins of our ancestors. To them, our past is abominable, our present must be spent apologizing, and our future is managed decline. My message to those people is simple. How dare you? You will not steal my son's dreams with your empty words. But Jordan is right. We need a positive message too. So here it is. From the dawn of time, human beings have had to work to make the world a better place. We captured the mystery of fire. We invented the wheel. Today, we build buildings that would shock and awe almost every human being that has ever lived. We split the atom, we spliced the genome, and we connected the world through microcomputers that fit in our pockets, that allow us to do amazing things. This morning, I destroyed someone on Twitter with facts and logic from the toilet. It's magic. <laughs> Remember your grandparents? Remember them? If I could go back in time and transport the grandparents of your grandparents into this room, just four generations ago, they would think they'd been abducted by aliens. That's the progress we've made. We haven't made that progress by whining and acting like victims. We've made that progress by unleashing the creativity and talents of people like us here in this room. But I do think we've forgotten what adventure is. Being adventurous is not ordering extra spicy chicken at Nando's. Wrong reference for this room. Uh, let me try again. Being adventurous is not ordering extra spicy chicken from your personal chef. When Columbus and his men got on those boats and took a journey into the unknown, they sailed to certain death. You know why? It's not because they were braver than you and I. It's because they knew something we've forgotten. All death is certain. And so I say to our friends in the world of business, you've made your fortunes by maximizing your returns on your investments. We are in the fight of our lives. There is no greater return on your investment than to protect and preserve our civilization. And so I invite you to follow in the footsteps of Elon Musk and Paul Marshall and Bandello and many of you here who are using your fortunes for the betterment of humanity. I say to our friends in the media, truth matters. We are in the fight of our lives. There is more to life than clicks and downloads. Let's move beyond the culture war where all we do is bat away the litany of slanderous allegations about our history. Let's set the agenda. Let's remind our fellow citizens why we are where we are. Let's remind them that we are the most tolerant, open, and welcoming societies in the history of the world. We're not embarrassed about our past. We're proud of it. And to my colleagues in new media especially, I say this. The legacy media is dying for a reason. They cannot be saved. They cannot be reformed. Let's stop complaining about them and start building the media empires of the future ourselves. We have everything we need. We've even got rich friends now. 
I say to our friends in education and academia, I understand that many of you feel like the French resistance or Soviet partisans, stuck behind enemy lines, undermanned and outgunned. And you're right, we are in the fight of our lives. So keep fighting for every young mind you can. It will be worth it. And finally, I say to our friends in politics, many of you here are conservatives. I'm not, I look terrible in tweed. That's why I identify as politically non-binary. Uh, but I can tell you conservatives something. You will never get young people to want to conserve a society and an economy that is not working for them. We will not overcome woke nihilism as long as young people are locked out of the housing market unable to pair up, unable to have kids, unable to plan for the future. I know it's difficult, and I know that whoever solves the housing crisis may well pay the price at the ballot box. This is true of many pressing issues too, or at least you think it is. But you did not get into politics to get re-elected. You got into politics to make a difference. We are in the fight of our lives. And if courage means anything, it means doing the right thing and being willing to take the punishment if you have to. Let me say it again. All death is certain. We do not get to choose whether we live or die. We only get to choose whether we live before we die. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me for another great morning of culture, politics and good old-fashioned common sense. More of that to come here on Reality Check Radio with the best of Peter Williams afternoons. And don't forget to tell us what you think. Text us at 2057 or email to inbox at realitycheck.radio. And I'll catch you all next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Buskey on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio.